kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to, well, welcome to the, I'm completely unprepared for this anti-nanny. With me is the very best producer that money can't buy, which is good because I still don't pay him. I very, how are you tonight? I'm good. (laughs) uh, I've never, ever not prepared for a show. Do you feel weird? I do feel weird. Uh, not like I can't do off the cuff, but I feel weird not having a, a set list of topics to talk about. And uh, G is not feeling all that well, so I'm pretty sure she's not going to be joining us this evening. So sorry, guys, if you were waiting for the wit, wisdom, and bubbly vivaciousness of the Miss Jeannie K. It's not here tonight. Sorry about that. So She's tucked up in bed, hopefully, swearing a lot. <laughs> Yes, I can only imagine the words coming from Miss Jeannie right about now. Um, well, it's winter. It's very, very close to Christmas. Does anybody else feel like really... I don't know. It's, we're getting to the point where it feels oppressive. I felt that for years, but then I don't celebrate Christmas, really. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything feels oppressive, but just... I don't know, getting prepared for it and and doing stuff for it and just trying to work is just, um, it's really interesting. Well, (laughs) over here, Christmas Mm -hmm. starts around September. Good Lord. Um, (laughs) That's because we don't have um, Thanksgiving. Ah. So you've got the Thanksgiving buffer running up to Christmas. So everything is geared towards Thanksgiving before Thanksgiving. But over here... They start about the same time as you start with all the Thanksgiving stuff, but for us it's just Christmas. So oh, yeah, we, have we have Hall- months we have- of Christmas oh, stuff. We have Halloween too. Halloween. Oh yeah, we have Halloween, but literally Love. as soon as Halloween's out of the way, all the supermarkets have the Christmas stuff in. Yeah, literally the best part of the year for me is Halloween. My favorite holiday, and for someone like me, um, Black Friday means nothing to me. But there is the Friday after Halloween where everything goes on sale and it's really cheap. That's my Black Friday. Well, I I bought my first Black Friday item ever 
yeah. this Black Friday. Okay. Because, well, it was a good deal. Right, <laughs> of course. And it was a big company that had loads of the deal. Uh-huh. Unlike yeah. some who the stuff that goes on sale is the stuff they're trying to get rid of because it's old. Yeah, well. <laughs> whereas, yeah but it, you know. Whereas what I bought was an Amazon tablet. Mm-hmm. And they only released it in September, but they put it on <laughs> sale on Black Friday. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess Amazon wants to be in everybody's home, which is fine. It just, it kind of makes me sad when I think about all the booksellers that closed when Amazon opened. Yeah. You know, that's kind of sad. My my own town, yeah, there are two second-hand bookshops. They're gone now. You know, that was my retirement plan. That's what I was going to do when, when I finally had enough money in the retirement account that I could pay off the house, which isn't looking like it's, well... It's kind of far off, but it's not as far off as it used to be. Um, yeah, because was... people, people haven't noticed, but that's how Amazon started. It started yeah. selling second-hand books. That's mm-hmm. where it got its start. Because um, they were quite clever. They started buying up all the remaindered books worldwide. Yeah. So nearly all the second-hand books in the world. Flow through Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like I said, this feels really strange. Um, coming on for an hour with absolutely nothing to say. This is this is my Seinfeld episode. <laughs> I've never done an episode where it was like based on nothing, and not that there isn't stuff I could talk about. I could talk about a ton of stuff, but I think I'm going to probably talk about the the thing that probably inspired me most was. Last week, I was feeling like, really, I, could, I was on information overload. I really couldn't take much more. And so I started watching a lot of Bill Hicks. No surprise <laughs> there. Because <laughs> that makes it better. Um, yeah. But old Bill Hicks, when he was really, really funny, before he got really, really angry. You know, towards yeah. the end, he was very angry Bill Hicks. But before then, he was kind of a mix between angry and funny. And a lot of George Carlin. And I found this video that the American Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences had filmed. And it was him talking about his best speech about how, you know, we're too short-sighted, the planet will heal itself, da 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 And then he was talking about, like, how healthy it was for him to just kind of step back from everything um, and not be a cheerleader for either side. And I, I thought about it really hard, and I was like, yeah, you know. Um, there's something to be said for that. Yeah. Uh, I really do feel like inside I'm a disappointed idealist. I want everybody to be jumping up and down and screaming at the government because they have no more privacy, but you can't force change. No. And you can't until, force... Until people see it for themselves, you're not going to change anything. So, yeah. Oh. oh, definitely not. And I'm okay with that now. I wasn't for a really long time. Um, so you've seen Man in the High Castle? Yes. Like it? Yes. Yes. And I like um, dystopian stuff, so oh, yeah. I do too. It's that too. goth element coming out, you know, <laughs> like, oh, it's dark and miserable. Yay! <laughs> you know, I don't even know if it's that. Um, I just, I feel like um, dystopian stuff is very realistic. Yes. In fact, you know, for fun, for the holidays, I'm uh, actually going to go see the very last Hunger Games. Yeah. Theaters. You know, speaking of dark dystopian crap. Um, well, I see um, Donald Sutherland has been making 
lots of statements about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which is good. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> it, it's good to have like the older serious actor talking about the movie. I don't think the younger people really get it. But well, Jennifer Lawrence probably would, but they're so busy asking her about feminist issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Which well, she gets really sick of, you can tell by her replies. <laughs> I think a lot of the interviews that um, famous people are subjected to are, are pretty, you know, misery-inducing things. Things you, you don't want to hear over and over and over again. I can't say I blame people. Oh, and I was pretty really, I was actually pretty excited that I got to see the um, trailer for Captain America Civil War. That was pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's going to be really good. But, you know, I would. You know, I'm the girl who dressed as Bucky for Halloween. So. Yeah, and Bucky <laughs> appears in that trailer. So, yeah. Yes, he does. So, it's actually pretty cool seeing him and, and Cap fight Iron Man. Yeah. That was, That's going to be a good fight scene. I yeah. think so too. Yeah, I know this is not exactly what everybody expected to hear this evening, and that's not a bad thing. <laughs> it really isn't. Trust me, it's not a bad yeah. thing at all. And I'm really looking forward to Mr. Robot coming back on. And then somebody posted on Facebook last night that um, there's a rumor that they're going to bring back Dexter. Yeah, I saw that. And I said, holy shit, you know, if that happens, I'm going to have to stop telling people I don't watch TV anymore because that'll be a lie. Because that'll be <laughs> one, two, that'll actually be three TV series I really plan to watch. I'm oh. really looking forward to the rebooted X-Files, yes. Have you watched Jessica Jones? I have not. Ah, I'm you not, might like I, that as I well. Really, I want to see Arrow. Yeah. Um, I... I'm really looking forward to um, the second season of Agent Carter. That was good. I, I streamed that. Either of those yet? Uh, Agent Carter was excellent. Yeah. I, there's something about that time in history. Um, I guess I'm a throwback. The women looked like women. I don't know. But I think you'll like Jessica like Jones because yeah. it's a good actress in a decently scripted show. And she's not all gooey and feminine. Oh, and David Tennant plays the bad guy. <laughs> so weird, one of the doctors playing the bad guy. Well, it's only season one, so you know. To get uh -huh. attention, they got a big hitter in to play. I guess. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, hey, Peter Jackson says he's going to direct an episode of Doctor Who. In case you tuned in late and you think you've turned into the uh, tuned into the sci-fi and fantasy show, it's not really that. It's this is my mental health break. I do these once every six months or so. Well, um, well I'm going to drop the story I dropped to you just before the show <laughs> into chat because I I I think it'll get a good reaction. I think it's pretty hysterical. It's good for the crack, you know. Somebody in Ireland was... Uh, yeah, some people's response to um, Islamic State or Daesh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> A guy in Ireland. Yeah. It's Ireland. They're not afraid of terrorists. Well, Ireland's Half of them that. are terrorists, or used to be. Well, so, yeah. yeah. 
Ireland's kind of been like that for a really long time. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it. People throwing rocks at each other and stuff on the weekends. Oh, yep. God. That has to get old really quickly. But that is an excellent story. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, Somehow, I don't think Daesh will find it funny, but that was the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I liked the Sharon Law thing. That was pretty mm-hmm. funny. Yeah, I, I know Sharon, and she's a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny that you're restraining yourself. Uh, so, yeah. I don't know. This feels very, very odd. Um, and normally, <laughs> there's usually somebody losing their shit in the chat. But I guess I'm talking about things that are agreeable to everyone. So, Oh, don't go there. Me. I'm sure there'll be somebody that will disagree with sci-fi views um, oh probably there always is mm. <laughs> I don't know it's good for me I am having a nice normal chat which I don't normally have so somebody said um, the Muppet show is being rebooted again probably why I mean they've already done it it was pretty terrible They've actually got a television advert on the go at the minute in the UK for a bread product. Nice. One of the bread manufacturers do giant crumpets. So they've got the Muppets advertising giant crumpets. I love crumpets. I mean, real crumpets. Not not the crap they sell here. Real crumpets. But I I have eaten just about everything in the British section of the supermarket and I hate Marmite thank you very much that (laughs) shit is just terrible what the hell were you people thinking all I can say about Marmite is it's better than Vegemite (laughs) I don't know what Australia was thinking about (laughs) I liked it when they criminalized it that that took balls (laughs) I mean only Australia right yeah that's funny I think of all only problem with crumpets, I love them with butter, mm. but when you toast it and put the butter on it, all the butter soaks through and drips out the bottom. Yeah, but, um, yeah, I mean, I've never toasted them. I grill mine. I lightly grill them. They're pretty Yeah, good. that's what I do. Yeah. But yeah. because of them big holes, yeah, holes, the butter yeah. just soaks through. I don't know. I like butter and honey on mine or butter and jam on mine. Good stuff. Are crumpets high in carbs? Uh, yes. <laughs> Ever so slightly, yes. <laughs> Not many things higher, in fact. Yeah. Um, but they're... the Scottish, yeah, Aberdeen Rolls, batteries, they're even higher in carbs. Well, what I was going to say is there really is... I, I've tried it. I've tried the no-carb thing before. I cannot survive it. No. I'm like twice as miserable and oh oh I managed to get four hours sleep last night maybe that's why I'm in such a good mood um, <laughs> I usually get about two yeah so that was a big deal yeah I can't um, do without carbs either I miss I bread stuff too much mm, bread and pasta and I'm kind of <laughs> looking forward to Christmas because I make this really mad lasagna <laughs> By the time you get it out of the oven, it's like 25. I can't lift it. 
out of the freaking oven. It's so <laughs> over my weight limit. Somebody has to come in and take it out of the oven. Because I use so much cheese and so many meats. And, and I don't really eat meat, but everybody else does. I kind of pick around it. For me, it's all about the pasta and the cheese and you know, the sauce. I'm all, I'm all yeah, about bechamel that. Bechamel sauce is a pain in the arse to make. Ah. That's the only thing about lasagna. I, I, Meat is murder. What are you? I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having a flashback. I think Morrissey's in the chat. <laughs> well, you somebody I know get... posted um, at the weekend what they're having for dinner, and it was all salsa and vegetables and stuff like that, because they're having um, fajitas. Mm. But um, of course, they didn't post any of the meat. It was just a plate with all this vegetable stuff on it and my comment was well where's your food then is it hiding underneath that or is that the bait for the food (laughs) veggie fajitas i don't know i love fajitas i haven't had those in a really long time and i i like i said i don't eat a lot of meat so a little bit of meat and a lot of veggies in a in a wrap is pretty good for me but um oh he had meat he just didn't put it in the photo (laughs) He just—he didn't want to look like he was enjoying himself too much. So, uh, Mudflap, you got the—you got the Morrissey joke. Very good. I can't tell you how many people wouldn't get that. Yeah. Uh, there, there a, is a guy who seriously needs to cheer up. Morrissey needs to sit down and eat a steak. He'd feel a lot better. I don't eat meat just because it's expensive. And when if I get you put home, a steak in front of him, his head would probably explode. Well, that would be okay too. Anybody who makes, you know, writes a whole album and titles it "Meat Is Murder," probably he probably needs an intervention. Yeah, he's made some of the worst statements about um, things happening to human beings that I've ever heard. I'm like, wow, this is what happens to all vegetarians. I think when they go vegan, they all go stark raving mad. I mean, it kind of explains Hitler. Well, in the case of Morris, he. He never was the most cheerful guy on the uh, on the face of the planet, and and then he went strict vegan, yeah, and just <laughs> fell right through miserable uh, into sub miserable. Um, he's amazing. <laughs> Even goths think he's miserable. I mean, come on. He is. He's a miserable bastard. He is. Yeah. Not that the Smiths aren't a great band, and not that he's not an interesting songwriter, but uh, he's also batshit crazy. Yeah. I. This is a person who I don't. I don't know how he's trusted to walk alone in free society. Well, Just he some of the has been known said. to go for people eating yeah. ve- um, non-vegetable products in his vicinity. Oh, oh yeah. so he so he's as he is uh, loving, he's as loving and accepting as anti-smokers or Daesh. Yes. So did you um, see that? And I, I hate to bring up something serious, but I guess I'm going to. Did you see that thing on Facebook where somebody posted all these um, posters that Daesh billboards was putting up? These anti-smoking billboards. Somebody thinks they can link them to Bloomberg initiatives. These. Like horrible anti-smoking things that Dacia's doing, which isn't really a shock to me. Well, no, I haven't seen them, but I can imagine. Yeah, well, you know, since they like to, you know, B 
be head smokers. Oh, no, 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 no. Only the ones that refuse to pay the fines. Well, yeah. That's the thing that was mainly in the media today, was the fact how terrible it was that they're putting all these levies on the people in their areas. And this is coming from politicians who keep talking about taxing us. And you're like, yeah, they're doing what you're doing. (laughs) Why is it different? It's because it's dish. You're like, yeah. They're they're acting like a caliphate, which is a government. So, yeah, they're going to be doing the same shit you do. Which is exactly what you are. Oh, oh, you know what I saw that was really interesting? And and I know people here probably aren't, like, big fans of Stefan Molyneux. All right. Uh, But, well... Come on, you you had to admit I I had to listen to somebody more serious than me, right? <laughs> so, so he had um, the guy who does Firewall on his mm-hmm. show, um, Bill Whittle, and I don't know if anybody knows who he is, but he had him on a show a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about genetic differences in animals, um, K versus R, which yeah. was really interesting, and then they were just saying like how different people behave and you can see like a K versus R and it it was really, really interesting for thinking there's maybe a biological reason for bias. Yeah. And I just thought that was one of the most interesting shows I had seen in a long time. And, uh, I know Bill Whittle doesn't listen to me, but he really needs to get his throat checked. I think he has thyroid cancer or something. He does not look well. Um, that, that was, that was my cheerful note for the day. Sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I don't want to eat the R's. I, you know, would rather not, but uh, the the weirdest genetic thing is that I saw this week. Did you see the report on the sea bears? Yeah. Where they have 99% of they, they don't know what their, their DNA is alien. Yeah, they they absorb DNA from everything surrounding themselves, which is weird. Well, it sounds like something that particle physics could explain really well. Yeah, but yes, the almost indestructible creatures are even more worrying than everybody thought in the first place. (laughs) Oh, they're, they're adorable, but it's just, it's kind of freaky what they can do. The only creature that can survive in vacuum. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's been discovered, anyway. You know, um, that just makes me uncomfortable. Um, and I'm I'm going to admit freely, like, the only thing that's ever really scared me, like, really, really scared me, there's, like, two films that have scared me, like, scared me shitless, scared the hell out of me. The Birds... When I was about 12. Yeah, yeah, laugh. Laugh it up. Um, Just because animals can just freak out and act any fucking way they want. And it doesn't take much to set them off. If you have ever ever, uh, seen a murmuration of starlings, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, That freaked me out. The very first Aliens was so well done. Yeah. Um, Just the tension that was built up in that film scared the hell out of me. And it kind of hooked me on the otherworldly creatures being the scary things that I like to think about when I think about scary creatures. 
Well, Alien is probably the film that came closest to scaring me. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't scared, scared. It was surprise. Because the first time I watched it, I was um, eating. <laughs> so were you eating during so, the chest buster scene? Yeah. <laughs> oh. So it wasn't really scared. It was more, yeah, I don't want to eat anymore. Now. Yeah, yeah, I'm done now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the closest the film's come to scaring me. Um, oh, I was watching, uh, you remember Video Nasties back in the 80s? Yes. I saw them all. Ah, really? And I, I was only young. One of my particular favourites was the totally ludicrous driller killer. (laughs) I think the dumbest thing I ever saw was the entire Faces of Death video library. (laughs) I'm just saying. I mean, you cannot tell me a lot of that shit was in stupid recreations. Oh, that's a TV show we missed earlier. Ash versus the Evil Dead. Oh. Great watch for the schlock horror fans. Oh, yeah. which is really funny, you know. Yeah. And it, I told you, so I'll tell everybody else. So I'm sitting around and I'm, I'm trying to describe to my husband, who's you know a big video game person, about Ash. My husband has never seen the Evil Dead franchise, and and I'm trying to describe Ash because my husband is incidentally. A big fan of the actor who plays Ash just has never seen any of the Evil Dead films. How can he be a big fan? I have no idea. Ash. I, I, mean. I have no idea. Just a big fan from probably from the early appearances in Xena onward. Yeah. Okay. So who knows? But he's done other stuff and serious stuff, straighter stuff, stuff that has nothing to do with, you know, slash and burn, you know, my left hand's attacking me and I've got to cut it off. None of that, right? So that's what he knows him from. He just thinks he's great. He loves Bruce Campbell. And we're sitting there and I'm like, do you remember Army of Darkness? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, then you know who Ash is, so just stop it. Yeah. (laughs) Because I think most people might not get that that was actually a part of the Evil Dead franchise. If you're not a yeah. fan, you might not know that because it really one. did work yeah. well as a standalone film. Yeah. But, uh, <sighs> yes, he's firmly in the Sam Raimi school, is Bruce Campbell. Yes. Um, one of the better films, I don't know if you'll have seen it, Crime Wave. Uh-uh. Ah. You should look that up if you haven't seen it either. Crime Wave is... It's a piss take of... um, You know those prison dramas where the guy's telling his story while he's being taken for execution? Right. It's a piss take of that sort of film. But it's Sam Raimi. And yes, Bruce Campbell's in it. But it's got some of the amusing, most amusing comedy um, gore set scenes that you're ever going to come across. Do you know what what horrible movie I'm actually a really big fan of? And it really shocked me because later on, the star of this movie ended up in a series I, I was absolutely in love with in my 20s. Um, Shocker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember You those. know what I'm talking yeah. about, Shocker, Mitch Pileggi? Mm-hmm. Um, where he was this he was the serial killer who got electrocuted and then he just like 
went through the power lines. Yeah. And, yeah. That was a terrible film. I actually liked it. I thought Mitch Pelleggi did a really good job. And then I was shocked out of my mind to see him as Mulder and Scully's boss in the X-Files. This yeah. must be fucking surreal for people. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Since I've spent my life awake a lot, yeah, I've seen an awful lot of films on TV. Although, in the modern digital age, yeah, it is kind of hard to keep up. <laughs> well, you know, I don't really watch so much anymore. I mean, I made it a point not to watch the last um, year, actually, of Dexter. Yeah. Because I could just tell, I had seen the first two of the last year and I said, okay, you know what? This is, I'm going to let the last season where they caught the weird fucking serial killers be the last season for me. And I was very happy with that. And I've actually done that with a lot of series. Um, well, I have I never watched about. Dexter. Oh, I have no interest God. in anything to do with serial killers, funnily enough. Be they dark anti-heroes or not. I don't know. It's Yeah. You know, doesn't interest but it, me. Right, but it, it kind of... Did you see Pitch Black? Yes. Okay. It's kind of like the same concept. I'm I know, I know exactly what it is. Um, but it just doesn't quite. hold any interest for me. Oh, and I know I the actor is brilliant. I loved it. I love watching the bad guy get theirs. Yeah. I do. I, um, there's another something... film that he appeared in, the guy playing see Dexter. Michael see um, yes. Yeah. If you watch Gamer, his performance in that is hilarious for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I've never seen that, but he was really good in Six Feet Under. Oh, he's brilliant in um, Gamer. Yeah, yeah, again, he's playing the bad guy, basically. Hmm. Oh, we hey. have activity on the meeting. Oh, okay. It's asking um. me for... Make sure you're not also on the conference call. Oops. <laughs> Well, actually, I guess we could have, well, I guess I could have used my cell phone and streamed it, but... Welcome to any meeting. The webinar will begin shortly. There you go. See? That was nice and loud. If that didn't get your attention, I don't know what will. And, hey, you know, it's not some British person yelling at us five minutes. Like it used to be when we used to have to use BTR and then we realized, yeah. like... There was no reason to put up phones for my show because, A, people never called in, or, B, if they did, they were just, you know, passing through on their way to teleporting somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that lets you know. Yeah, we're capturing the audio from the webinar. Fine. That's a good thing. I didn't know I didn't know if we'd be able to. I, I hate any meeting. We, um... Before I ever joined the CASA board, CASA used to have these like meetings once a week, and that's actually why we started doing the podcasts. Um, because basically the same 15 to 30 minutes of material would go out in the meeting that goes out during when Alex and I do the CASA podcast. Um, and we used any meeting, and God, that was a miserable experience. Yeah. I mean, it's fine for, like, streaming of audio, but 
if you're trying to participate, it's really hard to set that up. Like, because only certain people could ask questions, and it was, it was, it was quite. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I'll put it that yeah. way. But it works great for audio and video streaming. Yeah, and I'm it, just. Uh... It's probably not going to be applicable to me, but I was just looking at the uh, audio settings on it, just to. Not that I'm planning to say anything, (laughs) as you say, if I could during the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I don't know. So just making sure which microphone I have to mute in case I have to. So yeah. Yeah, well, I'm planning on muting too. I don't really want to interrupt that. I'm assuming this is why most people are here anyway. So, and the nice part, the nicest part about this is this is going to be preserved for posterity. Yeah. By putting it on my show, which I don't think if I, I don't think I would have naturally paired this with my show, but I'm glad we're doing it. It's valuable. People should know just how bad... Well, if you listen to the show, you probably know just how bad the federal government is. But um, just in case you didn't, there'll be some reiteration of that later. And it won't be me talking about it. So that'll be fun. And it's kind of neat. I haven't heard Cynthia Cabrera talk much... um, I've heard her a couple of times on Kevin's show, but I haven't really, you know what I mean? It's like, I think everybody knows Stefan, but not everybody knows Cynthia and, and the things that Safada does for our vendors. So that'll be interesting for people to hear. So I'm kind of excited. I'm just uh, trying to get it set up right on the other thing I'm doing with it. Um, okay. Okay. Yes. Take your time. You've got time. Oh, yeah. I'm, I can still talk while I'm doing it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I can too. But, um, yeah, I don't think anybody expected us to talk about TV shows, and I know I didn't, but uh, at least we weren't talking about the weather, which is a good thing. Snow. Because hot, hot and humid, yeah. or cold and windy. Um, that is my season so far. It's either hot as hell and totally humid or cold and windy, which just kind of sucks. Well, yeah. I mean, we're heading into winter here, and it's Scotland. So, yeah, the hills (laughs) have gone white, and that fluffy rain is falling. (laughs) You know, Um, I don't... I've got to tell you, I don't miss any part of not living up north... Except the seasons. I kind of yeah. miss the seasons. I mean, we've got them here, but, you know, not shooting the tourist season is not really, that's not really doing it for me. <laughs> I, I used to do that. I, I used to tell tourists. tourists, oh, <laughs> it's tourist season. Wear bulletproof jackets. They're like, what? <laughs> Couldn't help myself. Yeah. I kind of... I don't know. I miss the fall, though. I love the fall. I love the time in September that leads all the way up to Halloween. The 1st of September, when it's hot as hell, and then you have that really quick cool down, and then the leaves start changing. 
I kind of miss that. Yeah. That I miss, but you know, not enough to actually go back north and experience it. So maybe that'll tell you something. I miss the way it looked. I don't miss going outside to rake leaves. <laughs> you go out in a ton of layers and then 40 minutes later you're like dying and pe- peeling off layers and going I don't think I can survive this <laughs> yeah. or oh, the one that gets me is um, people clearing driveways and paths while it's still snowing it's like you're wasting your time yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, you're going to clear the path come back inside and in a couple of hours time you have to go do it again. Just yeah. do it first thing in the morning, put salt down, do it again the next day. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to be constantly shoveling. Yeah. I don't know. It, um, the very last winter I lived up north, I had a really big dog. And he, um, oddly enough, speaking of science fiction, he had a head like a Klingon. <laughs> which is not really normal for a dog, but you know, he was, he was a big baby. He was very tall. He was this gigantic black lab. And I really don't think he was a lab. I think he was a Newfoundland. Um, just because like his, his feet were actually webbed. Do you know what I mean? His toes yeah. had like webbing and his fur was very curly, which was unusual for that kind of dog. But not for Newfoundland. And that's what I think my dog was. I don't think he was a Labrador. I just think the vet had never seen a Newfoundland before. And well, it even certainly on a... sounds like your classic winter type dog. Yeah. Oh yeah. He loved it. He was he was great. But um that last year, um I went to take him outside and we just had a blizzard. Okay. So I'm shoveling, 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 shoveling. We we leave by, you know, the first floor windows. And there, the dog is just sinking into the snow. So I had to walk him for like a mile and a half down into a valley (laughs) (laughs) to find him a place to go to the bathroom. And then I was like, oh, this is our last winter here. (laughs) I, I, you know, some part of me thinks, you know, that probably uh, didn't do my dog any good coming to Florida. But um, he was an angel. He was the best dog I've ever had. I will never love another dog like that dog. And uh, he was great. Michael Morris telling me, you have to or you end up with a ton to lift. Um, Where I lived in the Highlands of Scotland, yeah. After the overnight snowfall, it didn't make a difference. You had a ton to lift anyway. Um. My father used to have to go out with a pole to find the car. <laughs> um, the, the, we, we would clear the driveway uh, when I was a kid because we lived on a farm. And my dad didn't get home till really late at night. So we would clear the driveway so that he wasn't, you know, driving into a ton of snow. Um, and then he would come home and he would use the snowblower for two hours while we'd spent five and six hours shoveling. <laughs> it just see it, where it I lived. Out. Snowblowers really didn't work because you'd blow the snow up and it'd mm-hmm. just blow back on behind you. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After uh, eminent domain 
took and seized part of our farm. Uh, it was really interesting. You'd go to clear out the driveway, and the snow plows would just come and dump it all in your yep. front yard. That was always yeah, lovely. You end, you end up with a wall separating mm. you from the road. Yeah, which was lovely. I just I loved the state even then. <laughs> well, as I say, Highlands of Scotland. It was hilarious. Even the good quality salt they used to put on the roads didn't work a lot of the time. So the snowplow would come along, build that wall between you and the road, Mm -hmm. and it was full of salt, so it would partially melt. Mm -hmm. Then nightfall would happen, and And it it would freeze freeze. into a giant block of ice. Yes. So there's no way for you to cut your way through that damn wall of ice. Not really, no. Well, you used to use a pickaxe. I think you and I experienced very different winters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the area I lived in, it's the coldest area in the United Kingdom. And I lived on a valley floor, and it was that bad. You can imagine what the couple of villages that were up in the mountains <laughs> above yeah. the valley floor. You can imagine yeah. what it must have been like for them. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, we were I only can't. 600 feet above sea level. And we got weather like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to imagine that. I don't. I'm good. Minus air temperature without wind regularly um, 20 degrees Celsius below zero. And then you add the wind on top. So, I'm cold. <laughs> yeah. Somehow I, I don't think you would... I'm going to say you wouldn't enjoy uh, Florida. It's no, just very I would die. You know, I you adjust. No, just, I'd die. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> you would I not. almost died in northern Italy, and it's not that warm. <laughs> you know, you really can't adjust to anything. I am... Um, I am um, too... It makes gardening... Too genetically engineered to uh, live in nice, cold places. Oh, I'm genetically engineered for that. I just don't fucking want to. I had enough. Yes, yeah. I mean, I moved, and I only moved about 100 miles to where I live now. Right. But it's a good 10 degrees warmer Celsius Mm -hmm. on average. And I don't even tend to use heating in the winter. (laughs) That's how adjusted to cold climate I am. You are a sick, sick man. I'm sitting here. I'm. I hate to tell you this. I'm sitting here in a Cthulhu T-shirt and my Hello Kitty um, winter jammy bottoms. I live in Florida. I should not be this cold. I am. Yeah. Well, I I started wearing a jumper last week. Oh, Up until then, it was. I was just wearing T-shirt. <laughs> no heating. Oh. But it's now got cold enough that I need to wear my jumper. Jumper is a sweater, just for yeah. people who are unfamiliar with the term. Oh, and I will say it's only a really thin one. Yeah, you know, it's one now of those just, dress ones that are like a few microns thick. Yeah, now so. you're just making me sad because I always picture jumpers being like those big, like, fisherman knit sweaters. Oh, I've got those as well. I love I've those. I've never worn one since I moved down here. 
for God's sake. <laughs> I love I, I'd swear. <laughs> I grew up with those damn things. I loved them. Talk about keeping you warm, almost like ridiculously too warm. Yeah. Well, if you wore one, you definitely didn't need a jacket. People do get confused in the Scottish Highlands because right. people don't realize there are different types of cold. Now, I worked with a woman who is from Sweden. So mm -hmm. she was even more extreme. She used to complain it was too damp. Uh, in winter but huh. most people come to the highlands of Scotland and think it's very dry cold <laughs> and you don't need as long as it's good insulation and the outside layer is waterproof you don't actually need a lot of fleece and stuff like that because all attendees are muted and may unmute themselves by pressing all attendees are muted oh for god's sake <laughs> well that'll wake you right up yeah, but um, yeah, as long as your outer layer is waterproof, you can toddle about, no problem, and you well, don't feel was, the cold. What I was going to say is, um, too many years of working in retail have taught me that there's a very different feeling between the cold, cold of even the ice cream freezer, which is 30 below zero, yeah. and the damp cold of the dairy cooler, which is 30 degrees. Yeah. Dairy hurts. Going well, in the dairy cooler for any length of time when I, hurts my bones. The the last restaurant type job I had was inside a, a chain store, shopping chain store, their cafe. And I was the the second, if you will. So okay. I used to deal with taking the deliveries in and I did mm -hmm. used to horrify the staff because yeah. I'd be spending a couple hours in the walk-in freezer without a jacket on just with a polo shirt. <laughs> they're like, why aren't you frozen? It's like, it's not that cold. <laughs> you really can adjust to anything, actually. But which is kind of neat. That's because of where I came from. It wasn't a problem for me. Most of them had to go in wearing their jacket, gloves, everything. Now, I did wear gloves, because I'm not stupid. Because um, I, I, your fingertips will, they do. will feel it. Um, oh, it's not, but it's not just that. I um, I spent about a year in frozen food. Best job <laughs> I have ever had in retail. Yeah. I've got to tell you. Especially in Florida. Oh, no, it, I have to go in the freezer. <gasps> it, you laugh, but they keep those stores like fucking ice. Yeah. It's cold in the stores. Um, so in the winter, they don't really turn on the heat, which is lovely. That's lovely. I used to keep a pink puffy ski parka from when I worked yeah. in the dairy cooler. It was so filthy. By about three months in, one of the managers took it home and soaked it in OxyClean. And they were like, this thing was disgusting when I took it home the other day. I was like, oh, it looks much better. Why did you bother washing it? Because I couldn't stand it. I'm like, yeah, but I only wear it in the back room and in yeah. the cooler. Nobody sees me on the sales floor, right? I see but, yeah. Ed has said, yeah, I came from a nice planet, and I have commented, <laughs> yeah, think of it like a mini Canada, Scotland, because <laughs> that's what it's like, you know, nice rolling mountains, bloody cold in the winter, um, yeah, can, can, a lot of Scottish people ended up in Canada for that reason, it's very well, the, similar. The places I've been in Canada, and I, I spent 
quite some time there. I really enjoyed it. Um, and back in those days, I was in my early 20s and I had left New York. I was about 18, 19, but I had graduated early. So I spent a few years in New York, which was nice. And then I went to Canada and Canada was great. Or at least the part well, I was coming in. Coming straight from New York, it must have been damn strange. It's like, oh my God, people are polite. <laughs> yeah, people are polite until you tell them you're from America. Then they really don't like you. And try coming into the country with a guitar. <laughs> you do know what happens to you if you travel into Canada yeah. with a guitar, right? Mm -hmm. How many hours do you think I spent being questioned? <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is this, El Mariachi? I mean, I had never seen the movie, but years later I had that as a reference in my head. But yeah, they, yeah. they, um, they, their street performers make a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And therefore they pay a lot in taxes and they don't want their standard of living reduced. So yep. if you're coming into Canada with the guitar, you have some explaining to do. At least, at least you'll have been very at home with the food there, though. Yeah. Very I European. Was. Yeah, it was. And I had a lot of fun there. And I saw a lot of TV shows being filmed. Um, I oh, don't yeah. Know. Half, half of TV seems to be filmed in Canada. Canada. I got to see the X-Files filmed a lot. My yeah. favorite, my very favorite show, which is a really obscure show. And I don't think anybody's really seen it because it's like a B-movie. It's well. It's not even a B movie. It's like a B horror series. It was a show called Forever Night, and I got to see that filmed quite a lot. All there. right, and yeah. That was. I loved that show. <laughs> so, that was a big thrill for me. And like I said, I got to see the X Files being filmed a lot, which was kind of neat. Um, except for you don't realize how boring it is on set. That shit is boring as hell. Yeah, between takes. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's. It's just lots of sitting around waiting. Yeah. Yep. Sitting around waiting and waiting to match the light happened a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the real control on this set is the cameraman. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or should I say the videographer. You know, <laughs> the, the, the guy in charge of all the cameramen. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it well, makes a huge difference. That's why does. the Coen Brothers films, I mean, they're always gorgeous. Mm -hmm. That's because they always get in, you know... Um, uh, guys that are, you know, expert at doing the lighting and all that yeah. kind of stuff. I like things that are interesting. I like when the cameramen and the directors film things interestingly, yeah. I, which is what I really enjoyed so far this last season of Mr. Robot. It, yeah. It's everything's very dark and stark and everything has such high spaces around it um or it has very low ceiling spaces and it feels really oppressive it, it the most they do a the, wonderful the most radically it. filmed tv show i know of and i don't mm -hmm. know if you'll have seen it is a british comedy show called peep show mm -mm. it's filmed from first person whichever character's talking that's the perspective you're seeing it from. Apparently, must, complete nightmare to film. I was going to say that brilliant. must be terrible. I'm sure, but I'm that must be horrible to try to convey that. Yeah, it works though. Um, look for it online. Um, okay. 
They're about to start filming the last ever series of it. Oh. But the cut it's a comedy show. So <laughs> it it's hilarious. But you know you see from the character's perspective all the time, but you're hearing their thoughts as well. Not just what they say. <laughs> right. Hence why they did it first person. It's really clever. Which kind of makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I I really I've gotta say I really enjoyed watching TV shows being made and films. I got to see some films, yeah. which films are not as exciting. But what's amazing is all the work that leads up to 30 seconds of shooting. Yeah. How many people are flocking around people, touching their hair up and their makeup up at the last second, um, making sure the shoes are right and everything matches up from like the last shot, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Because... Well, that's Sci-fi because of all people. them geeks that like that's going it. through stuff and pointing out mistakes. Oh, yeah. Sci-fi people are big for that. Um, speaking of, I guess, sci-fi stuff, um, what was that movie we were talking about the other, like, the last time we did a show? It, um... Oh, Ooh, God. No, I it's not even that one. It's the one about... <laughs> no, this is a completely different movie. But, uh... It's the one about um, the video game, and it's filmed in Canada. It's based on a video game. Something, something saves the world. Um, and a, oh, a lot of... yeah, yeah. yeah I know you know who I'm talking about, yeah. Um, I got to see a bunch Scott of... Scott Pilgrim versus Scott the Pilgrim world. Scott Pilgrim versus yeah. the world, exactly. Yeah. I got to see Brilliant a lot of film. deleted scenes from that today. Uh, and that was really interesting. Because a yeah. lot of the stuff that made no sense, like why are there footprints in the park, makes sense <laughs> now that I've seen all the deleted stuff. And I think the deleted stuff made everything far more interesting because the girl character wasn't really interesting with all the stuff they cut Yeah, out of it. Yeah. It's the usual, though. Studios go to town on editing mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. completely ruin films. Well, it's that's... It's like Ridley Scott still hasn't produced a version of Blade Runner that he's happily with. He mm. keeps bringing out new versions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got to say, you know, the one film I'm kind of disappointed in that I think would have been done better if the studio had stepped back would have been Prometheus. Yeah. They really, they, they fucked with that a lot. If you ever see the director's cut of it, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And by the way, I really like that film. Yeah, there was a lot of religious symbolism in it. Um, you had everything from Pan to Odin to Christ references in it, which were just interesting as hell to me. Yeah, um, and I think people don't pick up on that, but it's all in there. And I can't believe they dumped the idea for the new Aliens movie to yeah. make the sequel to that. Why? Well, that's studios for you. Dumbasses. They they love doing these little panels of members of the public to to gauge ideas, and I don't know why. You'd think, yeah, trust the writer and the director, <laughs> not no. that guy you got off the street ten minutes ago, <laughs> who may not even like that type of film. Yeah, well, they pay yeah. those people too. I think yeah. most people don't know that. Oh yeah, I I knew people get paid for that, but it's the fact it's a random cross-section they use. Mm -hmm. It's like, so half the people probably in your little focus group 
aren't interested in the slightest. <laughs> so there's no point having them in there. Yeah. <laughs> They're just yeah. there because, well, you're paying them there. I read an article about three years ago. It was all about medical studies, right? And um, when they do clinical trials and stuff. Mm-hmm. There are people that just make livings off that. They don't have a real job. They yeah. just go into these clinical trials. Oh, yes, I'm a smoker. Oh, yes, I'm an alcoholic. Oh, yes, I have AIDS. Students uh, popularly do that mm-hmm. sort of thing yeah, yeah. to get extra money. I've, um, I did an interesting one the last did time you? I was a student mm-hmm. where I wasn't in a medical trial, but mm-hmm. what I was doing was, you know, the little safety leaflets you get in medication. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I was having to read those and then answer questions about it afterwards. It was pretty good. I was getting fifty pounds per leaflet. That's not bad. But I was I only mean, allowed to do three in a day. So but those still, leaflets are those. I leaflets used to be able to do the three in an hour. So <laughs> hundred and fifty pounds for an hour's work. Not bad. Mm-hmm. I've got to say they're pretty terrible. If you yeah, ever folded one of those things and sat down and tried to read it, they're pretty terrible. They are, and I know, generally speaking, science aims for a sixth grade reading level. Yeah. That's how smart they think all of us are. By the way, just in case you didn't know, uh, science thinks you're as smart as a sixth grader. Yay. <laughs> uh, but those leaflets read nothing like that. They read like they're not written for the consumers of the product. They're actually written so that the regulators will get off their ass. Yeah. Yeah. Totally not for anybody who would actually use them. I really feel like this is culture shock to me. Never done anything like this before. In fact, the last time we did anything like this, I think we just live streamed music for two hours and talked. (laughs) (laughs) Well should only yeah. be 30 seconds, according to yeah. my clock. Uh, yeah. Well, do you have Well, we can up talk it? up to it starting, so it's not a problem. Oh, so true. for people that showed up late, you better explain what's about to happen. Um, we are going to live stream the NVC um, webinar about what you can do to save vaping, and that's for consumers and for business owners, and I mean, I didn't think it actually got much uh, notice by people in the community, so I think it's a valuable service, because you're going to get to hear from a lot of people. You're going to get to hear from Greg Conley and Julie Westner and uh, the president of um, Safada. You know, so you're going to get to hear a really interesting cross-section about what the FDA wants to do to us. Actually, that reminds me, I'm going to put out something on Facebook. Nice. And I think at this point, I am really overhearing people say that we've all got to work together. I've never seen everybody together under one roof before. And there are people who hold grudges or whatever, but... At this point, it doesn't matter. All of that just gets wiped away because when you face it, the reality is them against us. And they have all our tax dollars to go after us with. 
So, you know, hopefully this will be interesting for people. Fingers crossed, huh? Well, you got hope. Hopefully they do get a decent amount of people tuning in live. So, not just us. Well, (laughs) even if it is just us, it's not the end of the world. Because it'll be out there for posterity. There'll actually be a record of it. And there needs to be. Yeah. People need to wake up to the reality of what's actually going on around Yeah. Oh, yay. So, I guess my state just approved five places to be medical marijuana dispensaries in my state. So... No. Yeah. Well, over here, the Welsh government released its report on the health bill that includes e-cigarettes. Right. And funnily enough, the 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 people on the committee are split. So, yeah. Well, I mean, so if the health minister is sensible, and sadly he's not, um. <laughs> He should be pulling the e-cig part out of his bill, but yeah, we'll see what happens. The so plenary, or public discussion on it, is on the 8th of December, so that'll be fun in games. So you're, so you're saying the health minister over there is a dick? In Wales, yeah. Yeah. I well, won't say his name, because Wales. he's an idiot. Well, it's Wales. I have a friend who lives there. Let me yeah. just say I understand. So he's um, um, oh, and all the people that are supporting his bill are, of course, mm-hmm. all the people from his political party. All the people from shock. other political parties disagree. There's a shock. So, so it's it block looks, voting, basically. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, of course Oops. it is. That's because people don't think of each other as people; they think of each other as being split in parties. Is it starting? Hang on. Thank you for using any meeting. Oh. Yeah, that's the wow. test. Good evening, speakers. ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of National Vapors Club, I'd like to welcome you to our webinar, Time Here is Running go. Out to Save Vaping. I'm Cheryl Richter, co-owner of Cherry Vape and a brick-and-mortar store called Vape Den, and I'm co-chair of the New York chapter of Safada, and I'm also the secretary-treasurer of National Vapors Club, an organization that promotes vaping advocacy, education, and research. Currently, we're fundraising for the Bystander Exposure Assessment Research Study, BEARS for short, which will be the first study to assess vapor exposure through shared ventilation systems. By donations in our twice-yearly event, VapeFest, the longest-running vape event, whose profits go 100% to advocacy and research, we're hoping to have it funded after our next VapeFest in Vegas, February 27th and 28th, and we hope to see you there. Tonight is a very important webinar. We're going to explain the various fights we have on the federal level to cut through the confusion of what can seem very complicated. We'll discuss federal strategies and what consumers and business owners can do individually to try to save the vapor industry as we know it. And to do that, we have a great panel of the smartest, hardest working advocates in vaping. Representing the voice of the consumer is Julie Wessner, president of the Consumer Advocates for Smoke-Free Alternatives Association, or CASA. Representing the voice of the industry is Cynthia Cabrera, president of the Smoke-Free Alternative Trade Association, or SPADA. Greg Connolly, president of American Vaping Association, will explain what will happen if we do not get involved. 
and Mike Hogan, government relations consultant from the Alpine Group in Washington, D.C., and Safada's federal lobbyist will explain the bills before Congress. We will have a question and answer portion at the end of the presentation, and if you'd like to ask a question, please type it in the chat, and we promise to answer as many as we can. This is being recorded, and the link will be posted, and feel free to reach out to any of us on the panel. Without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Julie to discuss the deeming regulations and how we got there. Julie? Thanks, Cheryl. Thank you. Um, so this actually goes back several years. Um, in March of 2009, FDA finally noticed e-cigarettes, and they decided that they were going to call them unapproved drugs. And so they included them on import alerts and instructed customs to start seizing the products as unapproved pharmaceuticals. Um, and for those of you who've been around for years and years, you probably remember all of this. Um, and then in April of 2009, Smoking Everywhere, which was later joined by Sotera, which was doing businesses and joy, filed lawsuit against the FDA seeking an injunction against the FDA saying, wait a minute, we're not pharmaceuticals. And this was an important lawsuit um, that took some time to win through the system. And while it was going through the system, um, Congress passed the Tobacco Control Act. Actually, it's called the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. And that was signed into law June of 2009. And so basically, the Smoking Everywhere case, um, Judge Leon ruled that e-cigarettes could not be regulated as pharmaceuticals absent therapeutic claims being made in the marketing, um, you know, a few other things. And he did note, though, that there was this new Tobacco Control Act. And the Tobacco Control Act, again, passed in June of 2009, would ostensibly give FDA authority to deem additional tobacco products under its jurisdiction. So when the Family Smoking Prevention, I'm just going to call it the Tobacco Control Act, when the Tobacco Control Act passed in June of 2009, it only sought to regulate cigarettes, um, roll your own tobacco, and smokeless tobacco. Um, cigars aren't included, um, nor e-cigarettes. Um, and so FDA has the authority, though, to deem additional tobacco products um, under their regulatory authority under the TCA. And in order to deem them, it has to do a deeming regulation and the product has to be derived from tobacco. And so that's what we're dealing with now, the deeming. And in 2014, FDA issued proposed regulations deeming e-cigarettes as tobacco products, but they're not final. And in fact, there was a comment period. Everybody commented on what a terrible idea this was. And FDA has now put them in final form and has delivered them over to OMB OIRA. And Cynthia will be talking a little bit about that now. Um, you know, right now, I think there's a lot of confusion about what deeming is and isn't. And by way of background, this is designed to make it virtually impossible for a new product to come onto the market. This is not designed to benefit consumers or health industry. It was a frank recognition that there were some tobacco products out there. Um, there's nothing to be done about those existing tobacco products. But by golly, by gum, they were going to make it very difficult for a new tobacco product to come onto the market. 
And so what they did was they said that basically any product, any tobacco product that was not on the market as of February 15th of 2007 has to go through a very special process called the PMTA, and that's basically a pre-market tobacco application process. And it is not... Okay, so let's talk about what this is not. Every day I hear people say, oh, I welcome FDA regulation. I welcome it because I have a clean lab. I'm you know, doing all these standards, things like that. Well, the Tobacco Control Act and the deeming, it has nothing to do with product quality standards. It doesn't have anything to do with rules regarding how the products are manufactured. The deeming doesn't have anything to do with um, child-resistant or tamper-evident packaging, warning labels, ingredient labels. Those are all things that will come down the road. Deeming is simply FDA exerting jurisdiction over these products. And the unfortunate part is the PMTA process, which is what you have to go through because there are no products that were on the market back in February of 2007 here in the U.S. Once you go through that, well, not once you go through, the PMTA process is estimated to be anywhere from a few hundred thousand dollars up to several million dollars, and that's per product. So every liquid, you know, every flavor, like if you sell watermelon-flavored e-liquid, Every variation of that product, every nicotine strength, that's a separate product, and they all have to separately go through the process. Um, so it's very expensive, and there are absolutely no assurances that you will be able to actually get through the process. Um, the concern that we've got is that if we have a grandfather date, and, and Mike will be talking about the grandfather date. But basically, if we have a grandfather date of February 15th of 2007, virtually every product that is currently on the market will disappear within probably two years. There's an anticipated grace period um, during which products can stay on the market until they actually apply for the PMTA process. But... We're, we're unclear about how long that grace period is, and there's been actually some indication that it might be shortened to as much as six months for some products. And, you know, the, the concern is that nobody can afford to actually get through this process. Um, so that's kind of where we stand. Some of you might have heard of the substantial equivalence um, pathway, and that is if you've got a product that was substantially equivalent to a product that's been approved or was on the market before the grandfather date, then you can follow kind of a streamlined um, pathway. But FDA has made it clear that from their standpoint, substantial equivalence means virtually identical. So we're anticipating that, again, if the grandfather date remains um, 2007, that the substantial equivalence pathway will not be available to anybody uh, to take advantage of. Um, so that's kind of where we, we stand right now. Um, and I'm sure that at the end there'll be some more questions about the PMTA process. But, you know, the one thing I really would like to make very clear is if we were talking about purchasing a license, like paying a million dollars to have the right to market a product, 
that's something that can be amortized over time and people understand, well, I pay a million bucks, but, you know, over the years I can get that money back. You know, what we're talking about is a crapshoot, paying that money with absolutely no assurance that you're going to get through the process. And right now we're anticipating that the process is so onerous. It's not just the expense. It's actually the information that's required to be presented, and it's very product-specific, but there are population studies, you know, chemical analyses, behavioral studies, and we're, we're anticipating that only a few of the very largest players will have a prayer of getting through this process, and it's not even clear that they will. Um, so that's pretty much it. Thanks, Julie. Um, one other thing um, maybe you can uh, talk about is we don't just have to prove um, that our products are what they say they are. We also have to prove that there is a benefit for the full public health, correct? Yeah. And, you know, this is, if you step back for a moment, this is so ludicrous mm -hmm. because we have products that are on the market right now, you know, cigarettes, traditional combustibles that we know are, are just extremely hazardous, right? And we're talking about products that we're estimating to be 99% less hazardous. And we're having to go through this onerous process to basically get onto the market. Um, and Cheryl is exactly right. It's not just a matter of, oh, yes, my liquid, you know, contains these ingredients, you know, it, it's also a population-level study so that you need to show that overall public health is benefited by having your product on the market. And, you know, when we talk about how individuals, I mean, there's no doubt that on an individual basis if somebody replaces their smoking habit with e-cigarette use, there's no doubt that that is a win for public health. But the FDA wants to look at this at a population level, which means they want to make sure that children are not picking up e-cigarettes, that children are not becoming smokers, that people who were never smokers are not picking up these up. And, again, not just using e-cigarettes, but possibly um, also going on to smoking. So there's a, a whole lot of fuzziness in all of this um, that's going to be very easy for the FDA to deny applications without a whole lot of good reason. Right. <clears throat> well, thanks, Julie. Um, I think uh, that is a very good kickoff to what Mike is going to be talking about, which is um, two bills that have been introduced into Congress that, well, could possibly save at least vaping as we know it today. Um, and that's Mike Hogan. Um, Mike is Safada's uh, federal lobbyist. He's very involved and he has been for, for quite a while on uh, helping us out on Capitol Hill. Mike, are you there? I am here. Thanks, Cheryl. And uh, Hi, tonight I'm vaping a, tonight I'm vaping a pineapple flavor. Uh, while we talk here. Um, but let me add one little thing to what Julie was saying, and, and that's really about what the likely impact of this is. Uh, in Washington, they have a saying, 
if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. And I think that's kind of the case with us here. Um, you know, FDA is required to estimate the impact of their regulation, and they did a particularly poor job of it in this case, but they recognize and admit that many, many players in the electronic cigarette world, as they call it, will exit the market. And they estimate that through this uh, PMTA application process that Julie was talking about, that there will be 50 products approved during the first two years, 50. That's including all e-liquids, each flavor, each nicotine level, every mod, every coil, every wick, 50. So, you know, right now there may be 10,000, 20,000 different products, 50. And then over the next 18 years, they um, estimate that 15 additional products would be approved. So you'll have 65 products to choose from, including flavors and, you know, mods and everything. Um, it's, it's ludicrous. And that means basically that 99% of the industry will be gone. And likely the only people who will be able to afford the PMTA process are those backed by Altria and R.J. Reynolds and those with really the deepest pockets and most able to uh, navigate the regulatory morass. So with that, uh, there are a couple of rays of hope that we have. And, you know, I don't want to be overly optimistic here, but there are a couple of avenues through the legislature, through Congress, that we can employ to change the law and change FDA's ability to implement this reg. Uh, the first one is a, a bill introduced by Congressman Tom Cole, who's a Republican from Oklahoma. And uh, this bill was drafted the basically us, the vaping community, as well as the cigar people and the snooze people and the roll your own and and even the big tobacco companies got together and, and said, you know, we, we, we need to stop the deeming date. We need to make sure that it doesn't ban all products that weren't on the market before February 15, 2007. That was nine years ago. Uh, it's particularly, obviously, a problem for vaping because we had virtually no products on the market at the time. But every other group has introduced new products. So we all got together. Uh, we got Congressman Cole to introduce a bill, and uh, it's referred to in the House of Representatives as H.R. 2058. That's the bill number, and uh, it basically requires, it basically changes the deeming date from February 7th, uh, February 15th, 2007, to the date of the final regulation, which we expect to come out in January or February, early next year. So, it would basically buy us nine years of advancement, and all the products that have come to market before then would be grandfathered in, meaning they wouldn't have to fill out this application. Um, new products still would have to go through uh, probably a substantial equivalence application, which is also expensive and difficult, but not as bad. So for us, it's a, it's a lifeline to live to fight another day. If the regulation goes forward as we as it was proposed, we're really all out of business. Um, and so, you know, HR 2058 
it is very important to change the deeming date to the date of the final regulation. Um, and we will talk later on in this call about how you can help push this across the finish line, how you can make a difference. But the bottom line in Congress today is that time is running out. Um, they finish their legislative session in about two weeks and they're done for the year. Uh, if the regulation comes out and the coal bill hasn't passed, then it's basically too late. So uh, there's a good chance the coal bill won't pass in the next two weeks and we need to find another way to save ourselves. And, and so the way we did that is we got language in the funding program, these, these bills that fund each department of the government, and th they call them appropriations bills. And so for the appropriations bill that funds the Department of Agriculture, of which the Food and Drug Administration is a, a subpart, uh, we put in language that basically says none of the funds that you get for this year, fiscal year 2016, can be used to implement the deeming date of February 15th, 2007. So it basically restricts them from doing it by holding back the funds. It still gives them all the money for the FDA and the Department of Agriculture. It doesn't shut it down in any way, shape, or form. It just says you are not authorized to spend the funds to do this. So these bills that fund the government, as you probably know, are considered must-pass bills, and if they don't pass, there's a government shutdown. Um, there are, in, in this political landscape today, probably 20, a dozen or two dozen serious uh, policy riders that this is one of that people are trying to attach to the spending bills and they're fighting with the administration about a government shutdown and whether these riders get on. Ours is not as well known as the Planned Parenthood rider or the um, EPA coal power plant riders or some of the other ones, um, but ours is one of them. And unless we really push hard to raise ours to the top of the stack, it's not going to be one that is on the top of the negotiating list with the White House. And so we need basically Democrats as well as Republicans to weigh in and say, this one needs to go to the top 20,000 small businesses will be extinguished immediately unless you pass this provision. And, uh, you know, the, the CASA website and other places will help you take action on that. And I think Greg Connolly is going to talk a little bit about that but I'm happy to go into it more also during the Q&A if we want to talk about the uh, intricacies of that. But I don't want to get into too much detail, and maybe it's best for Cynthia to talk a little bit about the clearance of the reg and where they are in that process at this point. Thanks, Mike. I think that's a great idea. Um, Cynthia, you had your OMB presentation today, and uh, we would love to hear from you about the importance of the meetings at OIRA, and um, we'd love to hear about what went on today. Sure. Um, so the first thing I'll say is that, thank you, Cheryl, by the way, and thanks for organizing this. It's terrific. Um, so the first thing is that the folks at OMB appeared to me to be meeting weary, um, which is good because it means that, you know, people are getting a lot of meetings, and we need to continue that, if at all possible, um, mostly, you know, for two reasons. One, so that 
they understand position and where we're coming from and why the deeming regs are so problematic. And I mean, problematic is, is an understatement. But also um, so that they understand that the outcry or the requests for meetings are, are so voluminous or there's so many of them because there are, this industry is that invested in it. And I was talking to, to Will um, Cohen earlier today and, you know, we were talking about how a lot of industries, they always go for the long game. And a lot of the things that we're looking at right now are the short game. And we need to change our perspective a bit. So, I mean, to manage expectations, the OMB portion, what we're doing now, it's one of the components of several things that we can do. So, you know, one of them being the coal bill, the other thing being um, the appropriations language. Um, and so, in and of themselves, none of these things is the perfect solution, but they can help us get to like the next place. And really that's where we are because we're playing the short game. We're just trying to get to the next stop. So the OMB meeting was very good. Um, and the reason that you want to go into OMB, if at all possible, and you can contact them if you aren't able to get a meeting, but the reason that it's important is because they look at the financial impact of what the deeming regulations would do to the industry. And for the people who want to see it, our presentation that we made, um, and the way we did it was we did a two-part presentation. So I did the business side of it, um, pointing out to, you know, that this is a micro, um, these are micro businesses, not just small businesses, but also micro businesses, which is what a lot of this industry is. Um, the makeup of it, uh, you know, the size of it, the scope, revenue, how, how vapor stores would be um, hurt more than anybody by not being able to have these products. Um, so so I, I covered the business part. And then Todd Harrison, who's our attorney, our lead attorney over at Venable, he did the legal part of it. And what he did was he presented a couple of strategies that they could use or alternatives to the deeming regulations. And both these presentations will be available on our website tomorrow if you want to see the, inf the information that's there in case you have a meeting coming up and you want to incorporate some of that. Everybody who goes in to see OMB offers a slightly or very different perspective, right? There is some overlap, but everybody brings a new piece of information. And all information is good, right? There's always, we don't know what's going to be the thing that moves the needle, but every piece of information is good. So. If people go in and you have your information and you, you know, um, there was a lot of coordination going on. So somebody was going in and they were going to talk about child, um, the truth about the, the calls to poison control. I think that was Chris. Um, I went in and I talked about the business things. Will went in and talked about the veterans. So every, but there's some overlap in all those meetings. But everybody also brings a different perspective, and it's important for them to understand that. Now, they seem to get that the industry would be unduly hurt by this, and the FDA has done a, not a great job of estimating what the burden would be on these businesses. And I think we calculated um, in some numbers that convenience stores, vapor products represent like 1.4% of sales for convenience stores, whereas for vapor stores, it's practically 
or usually 100%. So part of the calculation is that, you know, if we're not able to have these products, then there are a lot of people that are going to go out of business in a couple of years. So every time you can point to a specific piece of data that they can use to help them further understand um, is helpful. Also, one of the pieces of information I've, um, that's in our, our presentation is about how the FDA calculated that substantial equivalence would only cost $3,000. Currently, there's no substantial equivalence for this industry, right? So there's probably some folks that could read that and go, oh, good, only $3,000. It's not a prohibitive amount of money. Um, by the way, I think 3000 is, you know, pie in the sky. But we don't have substantial equivalents, and that's something else that needs to be brought to their attention every single time. And again, I don't know how much latitude um, OMB will give this thing. I don't know how I, – I don't know that the current administration is particularly business-friendly, um, but – Every piece of information that we can put out there that becomes public record is helpful, right? Um, if you aren't able to go into OMB, if you aren't able to have that meeting, send in your information to them in writing. Uh, and focus also on the language, because that's something that can be pushed through. And I think the deadline for that is like the middle of December. So we don't have an awful lot of time on this either. I remember when I started working at Safada, or started the Safada project, um, in September of 2012, we met with OMB and we met with FDA, and it was like just reading through this paperwork, it was like, holy crap, this is going to be brutal if this actually happens. And here we are, the deeming regs are, you know, at OMB, and it's crunch time. But we have to remember, we have to play this smart. It's not the short game, it's the long game. So no one of these things is going to save, and I'm using air quotes here, save vaping, but all of them put together can help us move in the right direction or in the direction that we need to go. Um, the other thing is in the presentation that we did, and you'll see it if, if you look at it, one of the, we made several recommendations in addition to the legal ones that Todd made um, and one of them was that FDA, you know, start looking at the stuff on the individual level as opposed to the, the whole population, um, which is something else that's important because what's getting lost in this FDA thing is that none of that, none of what they're talking about supports public health. You know, none of it is going to save anybody's life because they're actually going in the opposite direction. So all of these things, um, any nuggets that you've got, any any new piece of data or something that you've been able to, to look up is going to be helpful at these meetings. And I don't know how many people that are on the phone today have had a meeting or are waiting for their meeting, but anything that you've got is going to be good. And remember, these folks are getting weird because they've had a lot of meetings, um, but <laughs> it's good. They're willing to take our meetings, so we need to keep having them. Um, very good point, Cynthia. Um, do you think that at this point, because uh, I think that there's relevance in it, that people should continue to try to get meetings with OMB? Yeah, 
if they're if they're still able to get the meeting, they should try for for two reasons. One, because it's important to be able to go and present as much information to them as possible, and also because it continues to show that this is not a short-term issue or something that you know we're only worried about for five minutes, mm-hmm. right? We're we're continue we continue to be engaged and concerned about where the final deeming regs are going to take the industry, and so we want to dialogue with them. We want to keep talking with them. And this is the thing, it's, it's easy to ignore it when nothing is happening, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't want to give the impression that we're not concerned anymore because X number of people went or whatever. And mind you, I know it's, it's expensive and it's inconvenient. Um, I didn't get here until very late last night, um, but it's important to do it. And I think that the overwhelming support that we show for these types of meetings is going to be helpful in that at least they can document that, you know, so many companies came out to see them, so many organizations came out to see them, and we left behind a lot of information. So if if you can still get a meeting, I would ask for it. Great. Okay. Terrific. Thank you. Um, At this point, I'd like to throw it back to Julie because, uh, Julie, I'd like to talk to I'd like you to talk um, to people about what, if they are a consumer of this product, what they can do. Um, there's been a lot of calls to action lately, and yes. just narrow it down and let us know what we can do. Well, you know, basically, Cynthia was exactly right when she said that there's no one thing that's going to save all of us. Um, and instead, it's a bunch of different things. And from the consumer standpoint, um, on our website, www.casaa.org, we've got a kind of a little bullet list of five things that we're asking people to do. Um, You know, the first one is to participate in our survey, and we've got a link on our website to that. Um, This is important because we're, we're trying to present, gather information to present to OIRA that's based on a relatively defined population, and um, we've got the largest database of consumers. So we're, we're trying to get some basic information together for our presentation. We're also asking consumers to do their testimonials. And, and again, a link to the testimonial site um, is on our, our front page. And the reason why the testimonials are so important is when we go to meet with OIRA, we're meeting with OIRA December 15th, um, we're going to be talking about black market concerns. I mean, black market is a huge issue from a consumer standpoint. It's, it's a very dangerous, awful situation to put us in, and that's exactly where they're headed. Um, but in addition to that, we're also going to be talking about the impact on consumers in terms of their health and and genuine public health issues, and that's where the testimonials come into play. And we're printing out our testimonials and putting them in boxes, and I'm going to have to go there with actually a dolly. That's how many testimonials we've got. I think we're almost at 7,600 right now. Um, And, you know, this we're going to leave those with OIRA because we want them to understand how profoundly this is impacting individuals. And we've got some testimonials that will just make you want to weep. Um, We're going to be issuing a call to action um, this week 
to consumers, letting them know also how they can directly um, submit some comments to OIRA in writing. And um, that will be going out this week, and I, I believe you're going to be rebroadcasting that for us too. Um, you know, but the other thing too is if you haven't, if you're a consumer and um, you haven't joined CASA, please do. The numbers really make a difference. When we met with OIRA, gosh, this would have been January of 2014. Yeah, that's right. Um, we met with OIRA, and I remember telling them, oh, we have somewhere around eight or 9,000 members. And, um, you know, now we've got, I think 122,000 members. And you can see how having bigger numbers gives us a little bit more credibility in what we're saying when we're speaking on behalf of consumers. So if you haven't done so, please join. It's free. And like I said, we'll be issuing a call to action later this week. Um, thanks, Julie. I think the public comments to Oriya is an extremely important thing that um, – consumers can do that we didn't know even just like a, a few days ago if that was possible so you know when you see that call for action guys just do it just absolutely do it um and also casa has a um a survey going on right now so please fill out that survey and if you haven't gotten in your testimonials to casa yet please do that as well um very very important um with that we have business owners on the line as well and they need to know as people in the business of vaping what they need to do so i'm going to throw it back to cynthia uh cynthia what are our calls to action so we continue to support the coal bill um and again i don't know if anybody saw the the news today but you know, I, I commented that there's no guarantee that the coal bill is going to pass, although there's been a lot more support for it. You know, none of these things by themselves are going to, and I'm using air quotes, save vaping. So we need to continue to support the coal bill. We need to support that appropriations language for as long as our window is. And I think, Mike, is it the 10th or the 15th that we have? To just kind of so keep the push it's going? Likely yeah, so the government shutdown date is December 11th. It's likely they'll pass the short-term extension for about a week. So I think we probably have till December 18th. However, the negotiations are going on now. They, they were discussing this all weekend. They're debating which riders to include and not to include, which fights and battles to take on. So really now is the time. Um, you know, you've got maybe two weeks, but some of these decisions are being made immediately. So we have yeah. to, as business owners, we have to contact our congressmen to make sure that they um, know that we want them to support the coal bill and that, if possible, we want them to actually be a co-sponsor of it, correct? Yes. Yes. And how, how many uh, co-sponsors are there right now? Ish. Not enough. 30. 30. 30. Yeah. You know, the other thing is when we're when when business owners are communicating with their um, elected representatives, you know, one of the things is that the the, the FDA did not account um, 
and I'm, I'm reading these notes, they fail to account for six out of the 10 categories of cost and fail to identify any of the benefits from deeming E6 to be, to, any benefits from e deeming E6 to be tobacco. And, you know, this is how government works sometimes, right? It's just this big nebulous sphere where stuff moves forward and it's not quantified and, you know, they approve something, but we don't know how it's actually going to happen and what the mechanics are behind it or whatever. And here we're looking at deeming regulations that don't have specific costs attached to them for 60% of action items in there, which directly affect you. I mean, how, how are business owners supposed to make intelligent business decisions and operational decisions without knowing what something is going to cost? It's like signing a lease on something and not, you know, having no idea what your rent is going to be. So this, you know, these things, and if you're able to, you know, click on our, on the, the presentation that we did for OMB, there's two pages in that presentation that just highlight multiple points in the deeming regulations, and it points to where they are that you can use in your comments with OMB and or with your legislators to show why the, the deeming regs are just, you know, kind of a hot mess. Um, but it, there are specific things that you can point to that as a business owner, I mean, it's just bad business. How do they expect you to continue forward when you're, you know, you're literally being blindfolded and being told, okay, yeah, this, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. We're going to regulate you. But, you know, we're not going to tell you what it's going to cost, but don't worry. It's, you know, just trust us. It's no, it's no way to, to do business. And, you know, elected officials need to get behind this and understand that they, you cannot be expected to run your businesses this way. It's just impossible. Absolutely. Um, so, Cynthia, your final points on this would be contact your congressman. Congressman, the coal bill, push mm -hmm. the appropriation, sent out calls to action on both of those. Mm -hmm. um, also, try to get your meeting with OMB. I will also say that for the future, um, we're going to automatically we're going to be submitting a fly-in um, for the first quarter. And for those who participated in any of our fly-ins, um, we've done them differently over time. But this one is going to be just like one huge fly-in, and you need to start quantifying your business information and start quantifying your data. Um, so we may have more information by then, so you need to start actually, you know, how many SKUs you've got, you know, what all your costs have been to date, employee, all that other stuff. I mean, I covered today with OMB indirect um, labor costs, indirect services that also support the vapor industry. It's not just the stores that are going to go out of business. It's everybody, all the people who also provide support services to those businesses will suffer financially as well. Um, and start preparing for a fly-in because we're going to do this and we're just going to kind of storm the capital kind of thing. So awesome. those are four actors. I personally love a fly-in. Um, <laughs> I do. I, I think they're the most awesome things ever. You go in and you talk to your congressmen, your senators, you sit down with them, you have a face-to-face -face meeting, they get to know who you are. It's, it's a wonderful day. Um, and I thank Safada for allowing that to happen. Um, that's terrific. Um, 
Greg, you on? Greg? All right, we're having a little bit of uh, audio problem with Greg Conley. He will be on shortly. Um, but uh, Cheryl, I can. This is Mike, and I can jump in a little bit on. Uh, yes, please uh, do. What? Wait. I think I'm on. Oh, there you are. Oh, Hi, you Greg. Go. Great. Um, How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you all for uh, coming tonight, and thank you, Cheryl, and the other presenters for being here. Thank you. Um, essentially, the message that I want to communicate is one that I've been taking to a lot of the vape trade shows over the past um, several months, and that message is that we need action. Uh, vapors have been great at responding to SAS call to action, making phone calls to the White House, calling their congressmen, calling their two senators, uh, but we also need buy-in from members of the industry. Members of the industry need to know that their job goes far, far beyond going to Casas call to action and sending an email. As a business owner, you should never be sending an email to express your concerns. You're a small business owner. You may not recognize the value of that, but politicians generally love you or at least they like to profess to love you because you are creating jobs, occupying empty storefronts, paying all sorts of taxes, all that good stuff. You're a potential campaign donor, a potential campaign volunteer. Your store is a potential place for a politician to reach out to voters. You are valuable. So the message I, I most try to get through to people is that you need to call your congressman, call your two senators, and your first words out of your mouth should be, I'm a small business owner in the district, or I'm a small business owner in the state, and I'm extremely concerned about the proposed FDA regulations. It would be wonderful with us having uh, eight to 10,000 vape shops in this country, if even half of them on one single day called up their two senators and their congressmen and just gave that simple message and talked about uh, their support uh, for Section 747, uh, inserting the coal bill into the final appropriations package, as well as urging them to become a co-sponsor of H.R. 2058. Um, there's a lot of apathy in this industry. That's typical. Um, but there's also a lot of uh, self-defeatist attitudes. So the message people need to understand, uh, in addition to just the general importance of reaching out, is that there are 535 members of Congress, 435 in the House, 100 in the U.S. Senate. Of that 535, there are about 10 to 11 U.S. senators that are strongly against the industry. They're not all 100% uh, against it. Mine can still be changed. But there's 11 senators that have come out against us, and then there's a small handful, perhaps five, congressmen out of those 435 that have come out against us. 30 of those 435 have signed on to co-sponsor HR 2058. The other uh, 400 of them, 400 Congress uh, representatives, the other uh, 88, 89 U.S. senators, they don't have much of an opinion at all about vaping. 
they are very open to learning. Um, and what should be scary, one thing that um, someone mentioned to me earlier today, many of these congressmen and many of these senators, they, uh, they understand the concern about FDA regulation, but they also don't understand the ramifications of it. They think that, um, well, 99%, that might be a little too strong. You know, maybe it's 80 or 85, but 99, that just sounds a little bit too much. Um, but they need to know that the FDA's own economic analysis, and it's a pitiful economic analysis, but nonetheless, its own economic analysis predicts 98.5% plus of vapor products being removed from the market. Um, and that's why meeting with congressmen, meeting with senators, uh, right now, in the next two weeks before this uh, important deadline, um, it's going to be tough. But just getting a phone call with a staffer as a vape shop owner uh, is very important. I have a guide to the appropriations bill, a guide to H.R. 2058 that explains all this information in fairly simple language that most people in this industry uh, should be good to understand. Uh, but we need action. Um, just sitting around um, at a show and cheering and saying you're going to do something uh, is not worth uh, much at all. It's the action that we need. So we have, uh, CASA has made up, as well as Not Blowing Smoke, have made up excellent flyers for vape shops to get to their customers. Um, and I've written up a guide uh, for vendors. Safada has written up um, guides for vendors. We need people to help their congressmen, help their senators, help the staff of the congressmen and senators understand that without changing the grandfather date, potentially thousands of jobs in their state or hundreds of jobs, dozens of jobs in their district uh, will be lost. And we need the industry's help. Because uh, Safada, uh, one law, sadly, uh, Mike, Mike is not a Superman, and one lobbyist, along with a few other lobbyists that are working on vapor industry issues, they can't get to all 535 members before uh, December 11th or December 18th. So we need help from the industry. Um, Greg, let me ask you a question. How is the, what is the easiest way or what is, what is a, a effective way for a shop owner to meet with their congressman? I mean, what, how do you suggest that process goes? Break it down for us. It's actually very simple. I think when you asked this question, I thought back Deanna Thompson, who works, who's in uh, Nevada and does some volunteer work with Not Blowing Smoke. Uh, they actually had the chief staff person of their local congressman stop into one of their local vape shops uh, after, uh, and they came in and, and they sat down for 30 minutes and talked about the industry, talked about 2058, uh, and that person took the message back to the congressman. Uh, that was not complicated. All you do is you call up your congressman's district office or their Washington, D.C. office. I, I usually recommend the district office, especially at a time now like when uh, they might be getting lots of calls to the D.C. office, uh, and say those all-important, wonderful words, I'm a small business owner in the district or I'm a representative of a small business in the district, and we have something that's very critical to us that is coming down the pike right now in Congress. And we'd really like the opportunity to meet with Congressman X 
or his um, chief of staff to talk about the importance of H.R. 2058 or the importance of getting the coal bill put into the appropriations uh, package uh, as soon as possible. Uh, it's really that simple. Uh, once you have your meeting, uh, I'm always happy to um, I'm always happy to talk to anyone, give them tips, look up information about their congressman to try and uh, see what sort of messaging may work best with them. But just getting the meeting set up is is chief and uh, chief in importance. Mm -hmm. I know that in um, recently in my town, my congressman had a coffee meeting with constituents. I. Um, I had subscribed to his page, you know, to get news updates and that kind of a thing. So I was invited to this meeting and I went and I had a nice 10 minutes where I was able to discuss with him. And his, his answer to me was, please send me more information. I knew very little about these products, which frankly surprised me because I had been down to Washington twice, but that's another story. Um, but, but the point is, is that it's, it's, these are your local congressmen people. It's not that hard, especially as a business owner, to get some time with them. So um, especially around this time of the year when um, they are looking to come home soon and they will probably be having meetings soon with their, um, you know, with their constituents in their local districts or whatever, it's – it's really not that hard if you're a shop owner to be able to get a meeting with a congressman if you are employing a number of people in their district. They want to hear from you. You are their constituents. Yes, and there's nothing wrong with meeting with a staff member. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. uh, the staff member uh, literally controls in many ways how their boss votes. Mm -hmm. uh, the boss is often more concerned with uh, – fundraising and keeping him his ability to keep his seat and then when it comes time for the vote uh, he has trusted members of his staff that guide him on uh, everything that he does throughout his day um, there are so many things so many issues on their plate that they are not experts on everything they take guidance from their staff they take guidance from the staff of other members that they trust um, and this is a long game this is not as Cynthia has mentioned nothing that is on the table right now is going to quote unquote save the vaping industry. But we, um, we need to start developing these relationships now um, so that uh, hopefully we can get the grandfather day changed. But then uh, one year down the line, um, we're going to be asking for something else. We're going to need to keep pushing to be able to quote unquote save this industry. Uh, it's not um, just getting in right now. It's getting in, getting those relationships started and uh, keeping it going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, you then become their expert in the, in, in the, um, in the field. So when they have a question they they tend to, to reach out to people that have talked to them about this before. And yes. And you don't need to be an expert. No, even though you'll no. be their expert. You just need to be the person that when they have questions, you can say, oh, well, I am not 100% sure of the answer on that. Let me uh, ask, and I'll get back to you. And then you reach out to the people um, that are better situated. Um, my other 
quick piece of advice is uh, don't go in there and slam your competitors. Don't go in there and talk about how Joe Blow down the block is setting a bad example for the industry, and that's why FDA regulation would be helpful. Um, you want to make it seem like people in this industry are aligned. Uh, you recognize that there is some value in regulation, but the chief message is that the regulation as proposed is prohibition, not Greg, did we lose you, darling? All right. Well, I'm sure he'll be back on in a second. In the meantime, um, I thought we would take some questions because there's there's a lot of questions coming in. Um, and there's a lot of helpful people in the chat that are answering the questions as they come in. But uh, I'm trying to um, find the ones that still need answering. Um, here's a question. Is SKU per product written into the law, or is it just how the FDA is interpreting it? So to clarify, I just want to say that uh, it's not a law yet, and it will be a regulation, but um, the FDA is actually um, considering each SKU as, an, uh, as a specific product that will need to have pre-market application. Julie, is that correct? That is correct. I, I think there's this feeling that somehow e-cigarettes are this large, fungible commodity that get approval, but it is each individual product, which is part of what makes this such an onerous process. So, yes, each SKU. So what that yeah, can so mean oh, – go ahead. Sorry, Mike. Cheryl, it's Mike. I just want to jump in. So FDA mm -hmm. regulates drugs and devices as well, and so – you know, each medicine needs to be approved and each dosage level for each medicine needs to be approved separately. And that's how they're considering e-liquids, that each NIC strength is a dosage and each flavor is a different product. It's the most restrictive way to interpret it, but that's, that's what their reg proposes. So to, to, to clarify, if you have, for example, 50 different flavors, right, and you have six different nicotine levels for each flavor, what is that, 300? You would have to do 300 pre-market applications for your company. Could it also be seen that they're treating this as a medical So, that's a good question. So, um, so anyway, the answer to that is yes, they are. And not only that, you will have to prove that each particular SKU has a value to public health, which no other product um, that is marketed has to prove, by the way. It just seems to be us. Um, okay, here's a question I think that would be good for Cynthia. Cynthia, are you well, there? I okay. am, and I just want to mention the PMTA. Yes. So... Swedish Match just recently got approved um, for a PMTA, and it was a ridiculously ex the only one ever, and it was a multi-year, multi-million dollar project to get that done. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd like to add that with, with Swedish Match, what they had that we do not have is decades of epidemiological evidence associated with smokeless tobacco. We don't have that. So in addition to it being 
ridiculous. I mean, hundreds of thousands of pages. Um, they they actually had information um, to submit, and yeah. It took Sorry. them, I Go think, ahead, well, it, was three or, it was three or four years, and my, from talking to somebody at Swedish Match, I they they didn't want to give me like a full number, but I got the impression that it was like just under five million dollars. Oh yeah, and they All know right. what they're doing. Yeah. Oh yeah. And they have a public Hello. health data. Um, okay, here's another question. Is there any word if China manufacturing are financially prepared or willing to do any of this for the devices? I'm assuming that they mean that they produce. Uh, Mike, you, you got something to say? Yeah. Who is that? This is Greg. Hi, Greg. Sorry about that. My internet, my internet decided to crap out on me just as I was finishing up my, uh, my little rant. Um, I, I on the Chinese question, um, I don't know if they've really faced the reality yet. I know that there is some effort ongoing about uh, getting um, the Chinese manufacturers who already have their own Shenzhen association, mm-hmm. but to try and start up an association. Uh, for those who want to continue selling into the U.S. market. Um, but as far as I know, that is only in the preliminary stages. So uh, I'm hoping possibly to go over to China uh, when the next time the Shenzhen people are having a, are having a uh, get-together to start to have dialogue with them about um, how their, uh, one of their largest countries, if not their largest country, uh, could be causing them huge amounts of problems. Hey, it's Cynthia. Can I jump in on this? Yes, please. Uh, so when we first started Safada, we had some Chinese manufacturers that were supportive of Safada, and it was basically because one of the founding members of Safada twisted their arms because they were buying you know, a lot of products mm-hmm. from them, and so they twisted their arms into supporting. And... The Chinese are very smart, and they're very um, opportunity-oriented. And once an opportunity becomes too problematic, they move on to the next opportunity. So they're not as invested in this particular industry as you would think. They've made a lot of money, but they've also, just like here in the United States, they've had a lot of competitors sprout up. And... You know, the, the chokehold that they had on the industry isn't as great. A lot of people are getting their liquid from here in the United States now, not from over there. We have U.S. companies um, leasing back designs to the Chinese, so they're not even coming up with the, with the designs. They're just doing the assembly. But at the bottom line of this is that everybody who purchases a Chinese-made product has the ability to apply pressure to that supply chain to that member of their supply chain and say, hey, my dependence, my success depends on you. I mean, there are anybody who's worked in manufacturing and is familiar with quality manufacturing understands that the supply chain partners are integral to the final product and making sure that the consumer gets what they want. Well, in this particular case, the Chinese are not at all invested in the success of this particular industry because they're not engaged. And the only way that they're going to be coerced to be engaged 
is if pressure comes from the people who buy from them. Mm-hmm. And that's bottom line. And that, ha- I mean, I have a couple of members, um, Safada has a couple of members who have reached out to some Chinese. We ha- Inikin is a member of Safada. Um, but there are a lot of companies out there that are not, you know, they don't feel beholden to um, doing anything else. So, but that lays with the industry, you know. So put your money where your mouth is. Well, Cheryl, let me jump in on this because there's one yes, other please. possible cal- calculation, and that is unfortunately possibly the most likely scenario, and, and it goes like this. The coal bill doesn't pass. The appropriations rider does not get included. This is the most likely scenario. Uh, the rule, rule goes final, and 99% of products are banned in the United States. So what do vapors do? Do they go back to smoking? Maybe, but as for me, I'm more likely to go on the internet, hit a Chinese site, order from there, and th- basically the reg will wipe out all their American competition. Mm-hmm. And as long as they're willing to r- risk the importation and the, the mailing, then they've got a free market. So they may be calculating that FDA is killing their competition for them. Um, that's, you know, that's not the place we want to be, and that's why we're asking everybody to, to get on board. Yeah, no, that is not a place where we want to be, and um, we don't want to support companies that do that either, I mean, or that would think that way. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that Inikin has proved that they're not thinking that way just by joining Safada. I think that's that's great. Um so um, here's another question for you guys. Once a large company goes through PMP, can similar companies come in on the, on the same SE channel? Um, that's a good question because it's, it's, it's like in the weeds, but my understanding is that no. Am I right? Correct. Right. There's, there's no mechanism established for that now, and – I mean, think about it. It's a it's a good out, but think about the years that are involved in getting through the PMTA process in order for somebody to even be able to do that. And I've I've talked with Bill Godshaw about this, who knows the Tobacco Control Act very well. Uh, and essentially, in the cigarette world, for example, uh, Camel, uh, they have their goofy cigarettes where you crush the filter and the menthol thing is on it, and I believe not every one of those has been denied, and they still have some of those out on the market. Uh, Altria can't make a deal uh, with Reynolds to be able to use uh, their Camel Crush and put out a Marlboro Crush for substantial equivalence purposes. Uh, Unless, uh, I don't know if the FDA has made clear, like, I'm sure if you acquire the company and you acquire all rights to the IP, then that's a possibility. Um, but I don't know if that's a question that the FDA has really tackled in detail, but the short answer is uh, no, very, very unlikely. Okay, so to put this in, in say, for, for example, an e-liquid um, manufacturer's standpoint, all right, I've got a Fruit Loops flavor. And FDA I have, is never going to approve that. Okay. Well, we know that. But um, but is, 
so I have this Fruit Loops flavor, and I decide that I am going to um, put forth, um, uh, you know, my, you know, request to the FDA to approve my Fruit Loops flavor. I not only have to prove that the Fruit Loop flavor is what it is, like it's got the ingredients that I say that it has, but I have to prove that it is good for public health and I cannot rely on anybody else's Fruit Loop-ish type flavor, um, their research that they did. I can't, I can't even cite their research to prove that my Fruit Loop flavor is better for public health and that um, it is what it says is I have to do it myself for my, not only for my Fruit Loop flavor, but for all six nicotine levels, correct? Yeah, and your, your for substantial equivalence, your VGPG uh, ratio has to be the same as the oh. predicate product that you're piggybacking on, okay. and the flavoring has to be the same, and the nicotine levels have to be the same. So if they sell it a three and a six, you can't sell it a four. Um, you know, I don't, I think it's very difficult for e-liquid manufacturers to, to try to count on substantial equivalence. The other point I'd make is that Swedish Match, who just had their PA, first ever PMTA approved, tried to get that SNUS approved under substantial equivalence to already approved SNUS products and they were denied. So they went the PMTA route. So it's it's very difficult. Okay. Um, let me ask you, this is another question. Um, what about the black market potential caused by these regulations? And I'm going to ask, um, in addition to that, do you think, panel, that, that that causes some kind of public health risk? Oh, absolutely. So this is Julie. Um, you know, this is probably one of our biggest concerns, a, a black market we often hear vapor say, well, I'll just go black market, and I understand that because that's exactly what I would do. Um, but the black market is a huge danger for consumers. If you think about it now, you know, if somebody sells a product that's not that great, um, there's a lot of pressure that can be brought to bear on them, you know, because it's a public product. Um, you know, there's social media discussions, there are lawsuits and all of that. Once you go black market, though, you know, all of those built-in protections that we've got um, are gone. And you just absolutely have no idea exactly what it is that you're getting. Um, you know, there's a, there's a genuinely beneficial level of federal regulation that could be occurring, um, but this isn't it. Um, and, you know, black market is probably the biggest point that we're going to be pushing on because we're going to have people doing all sorts of weird things, like trying to extract their own nicotine. Um, you know, just just really dangerous stuff. And that's bad for consumers. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. And OIRA has to, they have to take that into account. That, that is something that OIRA will take into account. So, sorry. No, I, I totally agree with you. I mean... Um, not just from the e-liquid standpoint, but from the standpoint of modification of devices. I mean, I was around back in 2009, 2010, when people were, were making their first mods out of flashlights. And I've got one. 
Yeah. Still got it. Yeah. <laughs> and think about how far we've come since then and how much safety protocols we've put into place, um, how much the consumer has driven that market, and are we going to be going back to people in their basement modifying a flashlight to get, oh, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, this has got to be a well, huge it's a terrible. Burn. Yeah, it's, it's a terrible thing. And when you think back to, you know, most of the people on this panel are familiar with, well, Cheryl, I know you are, um, what it was like in the early days. And people were doing all sorts of just really crazy stuff, um, you know, and this kind of regulation, when you're talking about technology like e-cigarettes and you do anything to freeze the innovation, that's a bad thing. If you think back to, like, in 2009 when I started vaping, I guess it was January of 2009, I would walk out of the house clutching a fist of stick batteries because they would last maybe 20 minutes. You know, now I've got devices that last me two to three days. You know, it, right. it's just the innovation has has just been amazing. And so, yeah, FDA is going to try to take us back to, I, I don't even know, I, substantial equivalence is not going to bail us out even if we get the grandfather date changed. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's the big thing I really want to kind of stress is the grandfather date change is a short-term solution. It just, as Mike says, buys us time to continue to fight the battle. And I know people are asking about, you know, what kind of legal remedies we have, and it's still a little bit premature. Um, really, there's no lawsuit that we can file until the regulations are actually out and final. Um, but people should know, I mean, that's definitely being looked at. I, there's no doubt that there will be lawsuits. Right, and that actually leads me uh, to my next question that we got, which is, will there be time for legal challenges if deeming passes? The beauty is that this is a very litigious society, (laughs) which is a bad thing, by the way. But in this particular case, yeah, litigation is always an option. But but I would say, um, you know, suing the government is not like suing a person. Um, suing the government takes years and years and years, and they will suck every penny out of you. It's hugely expensive. So, you know, if we can pull $20 million and we have four years, then, yeah, we can do that. Uh, But I'd rather count on revolution, which means people getting involved. Yeah. Um, Cynthia, can you talk about a little bit about – the, the after legal stuff, not that I, I want to make it sound like that's going to save us or anything, but what the future world would look like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, to Mike, it's funny because, you know, every day I, I talk to people and I go to these vape shows and, you know, we have conference calls and, all this other stuff, and somebody always comes back with, well, we'll just sue them. And, yeah, it sounds great on paper, and this is a litigious society, and we'll find, you know, attorneys absolutely willing to to run with that. But the fact of the matter is is that Mike is absolutely right, and Julie and I talk about this all the time. 
you know, the the money that would be needed for a lawsuit, and there'd probably be more than one lawsuit, um, but the money that would be needed is daunting. I mean, it's it's a Herculean effort right now just to get, you know, just to deal with the stuff that we have to deal with now and get that paid for, much less, you know, we, we have to look at, you know, standards, we have to look at all these other issues that are going on, and if we did have litigation and we won, right, mm-hmm. we still have to consider that there might be quite a few people who don't make it through that process. And, I mean, I have spoken to more than one company, and it, it kills me. I've spoken to more than one company who has said to me, well, I think that we're perfectly positioned to survive deeming, and so why, you know, why would I bother suing? Why would we bother suing or helping raise money to sue so that, you know, our competitors or these, you know, can, can you know, continue in the marketplace? Why? We'll just let them, you know, we'll just let the chips fall where they fall, and then we'll be still standing and, you know, that's their strategy. And it just absolutely kills me. Um, litigation, I think, should be the last straw kind of thing. And I know that there, I mean, it, it, it feels good to be able to say, well, we'll just sue them. Because there's a certain satisfaction from, that comes from believing that you can use a legal avenue to achieve justice. But the justice is going to come at a far higher price than just money. So we do need to look at a revolution and we do need to look at something different. Um, If we were to go through litigation, I mean, we would not be talking like like the Sotera case. And Julie can actually break down exactly what kind of case the Sotera case was. But it was like an easy peasy, out of the box, quick and easy, you know, quick and dirty, let's get her done kind of thing versus you know, what this would be. So post-litigation, it would still be an extremely different-looking landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question. Uh, do, do any of you guys have anything in place if that part of it actually has to happen? Or are there any plans? Yeah, I mean, are there any plans for that um, as a plan B? Well, I mean, I... I We talk about it. We have fantasized about what the lawsuit would look like. (laughs) Right. Millions, millions upon millions. The Satira case was, you know, an injunction, which is not a terribly complicated type of case. And that ran into the millions. And the only reason why it stopped is because it went up on appeal and, and FDA lost again and they said, oh, okay, we're done. Because they knew that they could come after us under the Tobacco Control Act. So, you know, when Cynthia used the word daunting, that, that's pretty much right. And if you think about how much trouble we have getting people to pony up money for anything. And now imagine trying to fundraise millions upon millions in the community, from businesses, all of that. I mean, it, it, it's tough. And plus, we don't even know what the, 
the legal challenges will be until we actually see the the final regulation. Um, you know, and then the other concern is if we don't get a grandfather date change, we're going to get a lot of businesses just sitting there saying, okay, well, we've got a grace period of whatever it is, and we're just going to make as much money as we can and exit. And they're not going to be looking to putting money into a legal fight. So, yeah, I mean, the, the legal aspect is out there. You know, lawsuits are a possibility. But I very much echo what everybody else is saying, um, and that is we just need to get busy before that. You know, let's, let's make that definitely our, our fallback position. But it's not the best solution at all. Mm-hmm. So, so um, Cheryl, if I may, let me piggyback mm-hmm. on what Julie was saying because I think there's another avenue. So, you know, a lawsuit is appealing the law or challenging the regulation. There's still another avenue available to us, and that is changing the law. The Tobacco Control Act that gave FDA authority can easily be followed and superseded by another law that takes away their authority or sets up a separate vaping regulatory structure where we're not tobacco, people recognize the harm reduction and the smoking cessation potentials, and they treat us as a better way to move people off of smoking. I mean, we've been doing it just through the market, but, but, you know, we can change the law more cheaply and more fast than a lawsuit, I believe. So I think... A plan B is for everyone to get angry and get involved and say, look, you're hurting public health, you're hurting small business, and really continue what we're laying the groundwork for tonight, but just turning the volume way up. And so I think that's a better plan B. And they're not one or the other. We can pursue both. But I really think when we can change public opinion about vaping and educate people about harm reduction, we'll win and we can create our own regulatory structure. Until that happens, we're going to be fighting uphill. Um, Mike, that's a, uh, that's a really good point, and that goes back to what Greg was saying, is that we have to get our, our congressmen involved right now. So um, he, here's a question. Um, can... Uh, it, if the o, if Oriya, Oriya, I can't say that. I'm sorry. I'm, I apologize. But if Oriya can, um, can we delay them long term? And will there do do we expect or can we hope that there will be a long term uh, issuance of the final rule? And it, it, you know, then we'd have six months then to to fight it? I mean, what do you think that the, um, the odds of that are? I think there's a 30% chance that OIRA will send back the regulation to FDA and say, it's not adequate. You need to work on it, change these provisions, maybe 20, 20 to 30% chance. And so we could get more time. The average time OIRA has a a final proposed reg is 53 days. So, it's not likely to be long-term, but if they send it back to FDA and say you have to fix these things, it could buy us, you know, 12 more months. And there is incredible political pressure, though, right now. Yeah. You know, and, and so I, I agree with Mike. It's, it's 
probably not all that likely that Elira will just send it back. Um, but that's what we're shooting for. OMB and Mike and I were talking about this this morning. You know, there is one case that I know of where OMB has repeatedly sent back the regs, Um, obviously not in this industry. So, you know, it's possible. But again, we're looking at a bunch of different components and just trying to utilize all of them to move the needle, not just one. Yeah. And there's also a lot of disinformation out there. Um, you know, for example, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids is making all these noises about how, um, you know, for example, the, the appropriations bill, including the coal language, would prohibit FDA from regulating e-cigarettes, which is just not true at all under any scenario. I mean, even if we move the grandfather date, there's still going to be the opportunity for FDA to regulate and exert its authorities. There's still going to be filings and all of that. It's just the difference between being a really awful regulatory system versus something that's just completely scorch and burn. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. When, you know, Todd did his portion of the of our presentation at OMB, you know, what he did was he presented alternate strategies that FDA could use. To what extent OMB will communicate that information back to FDA? It's not anything that we haven't already told FDA, but there are alternatives out there. You know, there's, there's nothing that says that they must do this. It's the external pressure that they've received. And, you know, the fact that the, the train is out of the, you know, the horse is out of the gate, it was hit by a truck, it's lying dead in the road, you know, and so it, it just is what it is. But there are other alternatives. And so, again, if we, you know, a revolt, and I'm using air quotes, but a revolt, but a revolt with options. It's not that we, we want this unregulated, crazy space where, you know, it's just, you know, everybody's doing crazy things or whatever. No, we want a space where the products could continue to be innovated upon and, and be made accessible to people and smokers continue to have a choice and we're willing to provide alternatives that don't include the ugly deeming regulations that we're looking at. Um so how do consumers make a written presentation to the OMB? Is that possible? Yes, and we're going to be issuing our call to action this week, um, giving more explicit instructions on how to do it. Um, you know, it's it's hard because OMB does need to hear from consumers. Um, you know, we've got a valuable perspective to offer. It's a different one than the businesses. But consumers, you know, when, when we talk about costs associated with all of this, there are real costs to consumers, and it's not so much monetary. Um, it's more health, you know, our choices. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll be issuing a call to action um, okay. this week. That's awesome. And Cynthia, what was your opinion of the OMB meeting that you had today? And do you think that they were receptive? 
Um, were they listening? They were listening. There were two people in the room, and there were three on the phone. And I, they were listening. I, my initial reaction was that they were meeting weary. You know, they, they've had a lot of meetings, and it showed. You know, um, they, they look not tired of having meetings, but, you know, preparing themselves for yet another meeting on this same subject. Um, that being said, you know, they did ask questions and they were engaged and they wanted to know about the vapor space. And, you know, we did cover some of the health aspects um, and why these products should be allowed to remain on the market and how deeming was inappropriate in its current form or the form that we, we think it is. So, you know, I think the people on the other, on the phone, so there was somebody from FDA on the phone, there was another person from OMB that was not in the room, and then there was somebody from the SBA on the phone, and then in the room were the two people from OMB. And they did ask questions um, when they, I think that the first people that went in probably got more questions because it was newer. But now they've had multiple meetings, and that's why I was saying earlier, any data point that you can bring up that you think hasn't been covered, you know, so the usual stuff has been covered. You know, um, they, they understand how long the industry's been around. They understand the evolution of the product. They understand that the deeming regulations as proposed would be crucial, you know, would, would kill the industry. But there are other points that haven't been made. And so those, those should be made in order to continue engaging them. So they, they were receptive and they were asking, but, and you could tell that they have had a lot of meetings. Mm -hmm. So they're getting a little tired. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, do you think that, Carol? Yes. So there, there is a group of people who haven't heard about this and who are largely still mostly unaware, and it's the United States Senate. I mean, mm -hmm. these are the, you know, the language preventing the deeming is in the House Appropriations Bill, but there's no language in the Senate. So if people are only going to do one thing, it should be to call their U.S. Senator, ask for the staffer who handles the FDA, and tell them why what they're doing is wrong. I mean, we have all the talking points. But that's who really is missing from the equation in my analysis of the political landscape today. Um, can I ask you a question, Mike? What do we do when we, those of us who live in a state where we have a senator that is extremely vocal against e-cigarettes. Is there anything that we can, I mean, I'm trying to work the congressman angle, but my senator is Blumenthal. Yeah. Um, so, other, other than vote him out <laughs> when it's time, what can, what can I do? What can we do? So, so I did this with one senator from Oregon who's one, really one of the ringleaders um, against e-cigarettes. And he, like Blumenthal, thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks that people are luring children in with candy flavors, and he does not know that the, you know, English public health department's giving away e-cigarettes and that they found it 95% less harmful. He does not know that the CDC data show that, you know, we're 
that no non-smokers are taking up vaping and that, you know, millions of people are quitting. So, uh, you know, I went to that senator. I talked to his chief of staff, and I, who is a former Kennedy staffer who's, you know, all in bed with the campaign for tobacco-free kids. And I showed him the data, and I was reasonable, and they agreed. They believed it. They said they didn't mean to hurt all these small businesses, and if it really is harm reduction, then they're for it. So take them on head on on public health and harm reduction and, you know, be earnest and honest about not trying to get children as, as customers. If they hear that, they can't disagree. I We're think students. that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's very good, very good advice. Um, there's some talk in the chat room about a million million vapor march. Um, does anybody have an opinion on this? Um, do you think something like this would make a difference to anybody? And to to extenuate that, what about you know like these petitions that we've seen? What do you, what are your thoughts about those? Um, it's Mike again. I, I think that there are varying levels of effectiveness for advocacy. The most effective is a face-to-face -face meeting, um, followed by a phone call, followed by an email, followed by a, you know petitions and lists of names. Um, I think if we're going to do a big fly-in, which we are with Safada. Um, yeah, I wouldn't call it the million vapor march because we're not going to get a million, um, but you know, cloud the capital or something like that might be fine. But I think it matters how you do it, and if people are, um, you know, smart and conscientious and educated and just seek to educate and and you know, there's really no anger there. I think that's the best way to do it, and I think it that would be uh, tremendously helpful because we'd also get press. Um, and I've done many of these and seen many of them. Um, I think that as long as it's done right, it can be really successful. Um, Cynthia, do you have any comments about that? Um, well, as you know, we're, we're planning this fly-in. Um, a march in D.C. Is not, a, is not a new thing. And, you know, to Mike's point, there are, you know, different levels of effectiveness for different, different um, strategies. And if we, you know, a march is helpful when a million people actually show up. When a couple hundred show up and it's the million whatever, then it doesn't look so great. And, you know, the saddest thing is to turn on the news and, you know, see protesters and it's just, you know, this handful of people standing in front of something, in front of the Capitol and, you know, just basically being ignored. Um, and, you know, we never want to send the message that we are not organized and willing to rally as needed. So if we're going to go through the effort of putting everybody together and doing that, then let's also hit up elected representatives and show them how people can turn out in force. You know, I mean, Cheryl, you've done a fly-in with us, and I think some of the other people on this phone may have, on this call may have as well, and it's extremely effective. And you get a bunch of people filing through the Capitol, 
in a, you know, in an organized manner and, you know, you're handing out these sheets showing how many people are here and you're talking about the numbers, it's extremely effective. I personally would not want to be in charge of a march, you know, but if that's, if somebody was really intent on doing that, you know, again, every, you know, every bit helps if it's done well. Yeah, I, I think that the, the key there is that it's done well. Um, I mean, I remember we put out, National Vapors Club put out a, um inquiry to the vaping community about two years ago, I think, on um, whether or not people would be interested in a march on Washington because we had our vape fest there at the time, and we got absolutely no responses, and we said, no, this is not going to work. So unless you have the numbers, folks, don't even – I would say work behind the scenes, and until you have – what you think are going to be substantial numbers don't even promote it uh, publicly because, you know, uh, unfortunately, and this is what I'm hoping will come from today, will we'll change, is that we, we have, we've had a lot of complacency and um, almost laziness. And I think people are starting to realize and wake up that now is the time to do something. And, you know... If if we don't have the numbers behind something like a petition or if we don't have the numbers behind a, a walk on, on Washington, don't attempt it. Work behind the scenes. See if you can get the numbers built up. But until you have some numbers, don't even – because you're right. It's, it's just going to look weak, and we, we don't want that. I think um, – if I were to come away with any takeaways from today, it would be contact your legislators in person, by phone, get to know them, talk to them. And, and I think that's how we, we really affect the change here. Um, you know, from a consumer standpoint, you know, one of the things that we're asking um, consumers to do is to actually register to vote. I, I know that just seems um, kind of a, a silly thing, but it's not. And, you know, we, we certainly don't take any position on who people should be voting for. That's not what we do. But we do let people know the importance of registering to vote and communicating to their legislators, not, not as some big threat or anything, but to say, you know, this issue is really important to me. And it is so important that it's one of, the issues, if not the main issue, that I take into account when I'm casting my vote. You know, that's how important it is. And politicians care about a few things. Um, primarily, they care about money for re-election. And I'm, I'm being a little cute here. I mean, there are some politicians out there who really are trying to do the right thing for their constituents, but they care about money for re-election campaigns, and they care about votes. And, um, you know, it's important to communicate to them that we're voters. Absolutely. You know, the, Cheryl, the other thing they care about a lot is press. And so, you know, if people have a local paper, they're always looking for stories. And, you know, if local business is, is going to be put out of business by a proposed reg, you could do a, a story on that um, and work in the senator or congressman or, or whatever. They, they read the clips every day. If their name is mentioned in the press, their press people will find it and they'll 
be reading about themselves. So, you know, not in a combative way, but if you can co-opt them on your side to rally behind your business, it's easier than you think, and they really do care about what the press says. So that's one other avenue that people can pursue. Um, on the on those lines, as far as the uh, the press goes, um, Greg, I know you're very vocal on what vape shop owners should do when it comes to working with the press. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Um, can you give vape shop owners some tips on what they would do if they were um, to contact their local newspaper and and say, you know, the, these regulations are going to put me out of business? What what do you suggest that that vape shop owner says to the press and and does? My general advice is that over the next two weeks, the media is not going to be our friends. Um, there are a few friendly outlets that I have been uh, working on getting stories in. But in general, most media outlets, especially health reporters, aren't going to be our friends. And the TV news, oftentimes, you never know. Usually it ends up terrible. Uh, sometimes if you pitch the story, it's not so terrible. But um, generally, and Mike may have a different view, and I'd love to hear it, uh, I think that our best bet over the next two weeks is to just focus on uh, contact with Congress. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a good time. To, you know, there's a certain time when certain strategies are better, and for the next couple weeks we need to focus on, on you know, coal bill and appropriations and OMB. All right. Well, I think that that's a, a very good resounding um, conclusion to this because we're, we're now at 842, so we're, we're a few minutes over. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if there's any questions that I, I didn't get to. Um, one question that did come in was, is there any way to keep this group of people in contact with each other for help, support, uh, with any questions that we all have during these very important next couple of months? Um, what I'm going to say is if you want to um, simply like the um, National Vapors Club page on Facebook, if you want to join CASA, C-A-S-A-A dot org. If you want to, if you are a business owner and you are not a member of Safada right now, then you might as well just close up your shop. That's that's how I feel about it, because um, you know you guys gotta gotta have some kind of responsibility in this market. Um, Safada dot org. And um, they, they tell us shop owners and businesses what we need to do. And they provide incredible guidance. So those are the things that I would say, um, personally, that's, that's my answer to that. Anybody else have any other um, suggestions as to how we can all keep in touch with each other? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if we if we did these more regularly, that would be helpful. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Facebook, as everybody who knows me knows. Um, but I always come out for the webinar and you know answer emails and that kind of thing. I am happy to. Uh, I think I saw somebody put in a comment here about whether we could organize another one of these for months from now or something, and I'm more than happy to do that and to answer the other person's question on this chat. Sapata is for business owners. Casa is a consumer and we work very closely together. Julie's still on the call, so you can ask her to corroborate if you like. Um, we work very closely together, and Safada only represents the interests of the businesses. That's what we do. So, so, so there you go, guys. I mean, it's really pretty simple. If you don't own a business and you're a vapor, join Casa. If you do own a business, join Safada. Pretty simple. And, um, you know, and, and follow their guidelines and what needs to happen right now. Um, I would really, really, really like to thank this panel because I think you guys are brilliant and I am very, very proud to know you all and to call you my friends and to know that we are in this together. And, um, We've got a very big fight. If we want to do this a month from now, if we want to do this a couple of weeks from now, I'm happy to do that. This uh, recording will be um, available. We'll post it where, you know, all over the place. And um, I, I'm going to offer, if anybody has any questions from me, um, please email me at Cheryl at VaporsClub.com. And, uh, guys, I want to thank you so much for this, this wonderful uh, presentation that you guys gave. And thank you for joining me. Thank you so much thank for doing this, Cheryl. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Everybody, go out and meet your congressman. <laughs> 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 All right. Good night, guys. Thank you again. Good night. Thanks, Cheryl. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, everybody, that's the end of the webinar. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess we're back for the evening. Um, and I guess now would be a good time to close the show out. Um, have you got the Muppet Show music ready? Oh, yeah. Okay. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Thanks, guys. Um, thanks for listening. Um, come back next Monday for a normal, fun-filled podcast. I promise it'll be fun. <laughs> Good night. Thanks for listening.